will stand up straight or I will personally shit kick every Far Eastern bannock that appeared before my eyes! Well done, Sergeant. When you understand the language, sir, everything falls into place. Oh my god. I forgot. Okay, okay. I forgot I fucking had there's Fuck another stab after you click. All right, we're doing it now. I forgot there's, there's another two stab. buttons. Yeah, you gotta click record and then you have to either specify record to this computer or record to the fucking cloud, which uh, I don't know what that is still. That's fine. That sounds difficult. I mean, joking about the cloud was like a stand-up routine in like 2000 and probably eight, but okay, that's fine. <laughs> well, could you talk about vaping then also? Yeah, well, you can now. So yeah, I'm I can up, talk about I'm, vaping. All I'm day. updating the fucking joke, dude. Yeah, Paul, vape man. <laughs> Paul, I'm still. I was still trying to find your. I'm still obsessed with trying to find your vape that you dropped in my couch. That was a bad. That was a bad night. <laughs> Gabe, Gabe's couch is crazy. It's like the or there's like a little Bermuda Triangle like in the couch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just uh, sucks everything in it. Well, I yeah, the vapes that are that look like uh thumb drives are crazy. Like I would lose those. You I mean lose... you mean these? Yeah, is that a jewel? Yeah, it's a jewel. Yeah, I would lose I that love... like every day. Oh, Paul yeah, does. Paul does. Often. Don't worry. Paul definitely does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially when want... I'm sitting on your couch. <laughs> well, it's it's a perfect storm when You've got your little thumb drive vape, and then you got Paul or uh, uh, Gabe's voracious couch. <laughs> yeah, my couch yeah. is 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 a special situation for sure. Hell, uh, hey, hello everybody, welcome. This is an episode of uh, Spine Crackers, a show about uh, books. Uh, I'm Matthew, one of your hosts. I'm Gabe. Uh, the other, another host. I'm Paul. And then we got Paul, a, one of the we have a, a special guest in the house today. For a special motherfucking occasion to tackle our first fat boy chonker book, 500 page, oh, uh, thick boy. We got yes. Dan, we got uh, Daniel from uh, the Viva La Dude podcast. What's going on, man? I think you're you might muted. be muted. <laughs> Sorry. Let's go. All right. What's up? Uh, what's up? Spine, what's up, Spinecracker Nation? I'm I'm unmuted now. Bet. Yeah, we got a new cracker in the mix. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know if I was if I could make that joke, you know, because I'm the I'm the guest, but it's okay. Yeah. We already cracked the ice. <laughs> <laughs> no limits, baby. No limits. We're we're limitless on this podcast. Hell yeah. So, uh yeah so uh today we're 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 talking about as i said a, a little bit of a thick boy helen dewitt's novel the last samurai don't get it twisted uh tom cruise is not in this this the movie was not an adaptation of this book uh <laughs> yeah although it would be sick if tom cruise was in the adaptation of this book which would be different right he'd have to be i was kind of kinda, i was kind of hoping i was gonna make that joke god damn it i was, uh, I was gonna say that I wish that he was one of the fathers that he cracked down, like on the set of Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> finds Tom Cruise. Well, yeah, I mean, this raises the question, is Tom Cruise a genius, you know? <laughs> Dude. <laughs> is, his act, is his acting ability so good that we could categorize it as genius acting ability? 100 fucking percent. Yeah, 100%, like, there's yeah. an argument to be made. Absolutely. I mean, well, he's kind I, of he is kind of method, right? I mean, just in general, like I think he's an insane person. So. And I think Matt, you pointed this out in the chat. Tom Cruise 
both a genius and has fucking complicated father problems. Yes, Ooh. compensating for the a void of a father in his life who he does not speak about. Facts. Yeah. You know, uh, Tom Cruise is actually from my hometown and went to uh, grade school with my aunt. No shit. No way. Yeah. And his right. real last name is not Cruise. Uh, yeah, gonna, I did I know that, that actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's too cool of a name. So <laughs> it's definitely too cool. Yeah. What's up? I'm Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I can't remember what his name actually is, but Glide like, something like Mo- Montgomery <laughs> Callahan or something. Tom Callahan. <laughs> Tom, why, like, why did he do that? Was it oh, just like, like a stage name? Right. It's like that's change, that's super common for actors, dude. Yeah. Oh, it's M- Thomas Cruz Mapother the fourth. Oh yeah, Mapother. What the fuck oh. is that? That rocks. I don't know that, what you're talking about. I mean, it's no, it's cool. It just sounds like like a cursed like Faulkner Southern family <laughs> name. Like that does seem to be like what the deal was with his family. Yeah. Um. So, Matt, this was your choice for a book. Um. So, if anyone's mad, directed it, Matt. And uh, yeah. So, what what's the deal, man? Why'd you pick this book? What's what's it about? What's its deal? I mean, again, I, I don't have a very good story as to why I chose it. I just, um, I was kind of looking for female authors. Um, and, you know, there was like a fun, there's a fun backstory to this about like it being like a sensation at Frankfurt and like this kind of like, you know, uh, you know, uh, like it, it, super excitement inducing in the book world kind of premiere novel by this young woman. Uh, and I don't know, that was kind of all it took for me to be curious. And then like, I just did a little more digging and seemed like a very strange kind of story told in an experimental way. And I'm a sucker for that. Uh, so yeah, I don't know, just like landed on it. When did and, his book uh, come out again? I forgot. Like 2000. Okay, right around, yeah, right. Okay, cool. Yeah, it was like coterminous with uh, the, Ma- the Matrix. Right. Yeah, and that will obviously fold in very nicely later. No. <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot of overlap, a lot of overlap in those texts. Yeah, it looks like 2000 although like I, I think she'd been writing it for like a bajillion years and uh I do think that like the shitty process of of getting this thing published finally does factor heavily into the kind of like subtext of everything that's going on in here that's part of the story of it right kind of like it was rejected like mad times before it was finally published yeah yeah, yeah. she would br- she would bring it around to the editors and they'd like edit the shit out of it and basically cross out all of the the big huge text in everything you know yeah can you can you like, actually t- tell me a little bit about that backstory because i'm not familiar with the whole like it problem with it getting published she, I mean, I'm not totally sure. It took her a long time to write it, but then the it took way more time than that to sort of shop it around. Okay. Uh, and most people were just, yeah, kind of like, what is this? What the fuck did you write? I really love like this like run of pages. Can we sort of just axe everything else and make it more in this vein? You know, the kind like the normal shit that like would probably infuriate somebody. The way that like Herman Melville literally got told to put like a, a like bosomy maidens in moby dick instead of whale, a whale <laughs> i mean i don't know i'd kind of read that instead mm-hmm. yeah those of me maidens a white heaving 
decolletage. Uh, but, <laughs> but so yeah, so it was just like kind of that, like, she, and she herself, like Helen DeWitt, seems to be pretty, like, you know, she stood by how exactly she wanted it. So there was just this constant like headbutting, and uh, it just took her forever to publish. And uh, eventually she did get it published at Frankfurt or like got an option and got like a huge ass like sum of money after toiling away for years and years in like kind of poverty. And wait, uh, I just want to revisit something just briefly. I'm sorry. Herman yeah. Melville was told to replace the whale with boobs. No, he was actually told to replace uh, to replace the whale with something uh, like a villain of some kind that was human and include hot bitches in it as well. Got it. Got it. And that's like, that make, is true. So make it like uh like the Marvel comic bo uh, book of, of <laughs> uh, deep sea fishing, whale fish. Alternative Aquaman. title. Yeah. Mo. Alternative title. Mo boobies <laughs> for my dick. <laughs> God damn it, Gabriel. All right, female authors. Female authors. I'm sorry. Yeah, we're trying to celebrate female authors. Do you ever think that the mind is sort of like a phallus that penetrates into the harder questions? <laughs> Oh God, fuck. Okay. <clears throat> so yeah, uh, then do you want to yeah give a give a crack at yeah keep going. Sorry, I don't know. She got a big lump sum. It it, but uh, as soon as the actual process of getting it ready for printing came about, they started hacking and slashing it again, and there was another protracted time period of withdrawing from that you know further deal and and then getting it published way back way later. So that's it. So she's pretty mm -hmm. down on publishing. And uh, just the general approach. And then, to... and then she had to change the name, right? Did she? Oh, or yeah. Was it, because Wasn't there a thing with the name? Yeah, or, she or changed it I... to Last Samurai. I don't remember what it was before, but she changed it to Last Samurai. And then three years later, the movie South Last Samurai came out. <laughs> so was it, did she originally try to call it Seven Samurais? But I think that's true. And she yeah. ran into like a, a. But then, ironically, she changed it to Last Samurai, and then there, then the movie came out and it was named the same thing. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? What the fuck kind of luck is that? Yeah, like I, someone, someone fucked up on the copyright end of this book. It seems like to let a movie come out just with the literal exact same title. But well, also, I mean, we do have to question: is is she allowed to write about samurai culture? Is that cultural appropriation? Ooh, that's Ooh, a good interesting. question. Inter hold on, but isn't the last samurai also wasn't it a, ha a source material for? <laughs> hold on, hold on. The last. The, the funny thing I, is too. I think Helen Dewitt. I, I've seen a picture of her, and she has cornrows. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's a, she's like a crust punk. <laughs> yeah. Damn. <laughs> that's oh, pretty cool all dude. over the map yeah. yeah okay i like it i like it more now yeah definitely. that's that's just like she's chaotic so that that yeah. anything goes yeah yeah but yeah i'm not sure about the actual movie the last samurai because if that because if that was based on an earlier different book that was also named the last samurai then we've got we got a fucking inception situation. Yeah, here, I'm I already think. confused. That's... I'll be honest. I have not seen The Last Samurai. I never saw the movie, actually. I did. I have Neither seen a long, I. long time ago, Seven Samurais, Seven Samurai or whatever. But I like only vaguely remember that. So I probably see... should have watched those movies before this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seven Samurai is like three fucking hours long. 
Yes. It's that almost as long as this book. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah, it's got it's got sumo thickness all like this book does. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, did you turn anything up on the 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 movie Last Samurai Source material? I mean, my cursory thing is it's I think it's okay. I think we're in the clear. I think it's it's genuine. It's just a genuine article. There's no source material it's based off of. For the movie? For The Last Samurai, the movie. With Tom Cruise. Okay. Except history, right? Isn't that like a, basically a documentary? It, <laughs> I think it is based on some sort of historical event, but I'm not going to just sort of read Wikipedia right now. Talk about cultural appropriation, dude. White samurai. Oh what is this? What is this? Yeah. Or everyone getting mad at Matt Damon for being in the Great Wall. Yeah. During the Great Lizard War of <laughs> whatever the, whatever factual <laughs> event was happening that they based that off of. Matt, do you want to take a swing at like uh summarizing this book in a quick sort of way? Yeah, it's long, but I think the genuine or genuine fuck me. All right. Uh better drink more. Um, <laughs> the general like plot points are fairly straightforward. It's just like uh this very strange woman uh, has a sort of ill-fated one-night stand with uh, this guy to kind of sh just basically shut him up. It's a little, it's kind of almost, you know, questionably rape. It, it's um, Liberace, too. His name is Liberace. <laughs> of all people. She fucks, yeah, like 80-year-old Liberace. Yeah, it shit. tickled the ivories just so. And, uh, <laughs> like, you know, there's very little described about, like, her finding out she's pregnant and like having a kid, we just sort of jumped to. And she's an she's American student in England, right? And this guy is a like a famous British writer, Liberace, right? Yeah. And Liberace is a nickname that she gives him because she finds him crass and, you know, de classe. Uh, she has a son. She names him Ludovic. Uh, her name is Sibylla. And. Uh, yeah, her name is Syllabus. <laughs> might as well be. <laughs> <laughs> and she, you know, she's kind of, she just is remaining, she's kind of evading her own family situation, which the book starts off kind of giving a brief history of, and just living on this, like, I think pretty much expired work permit or something in, in the UK, in London, and just like, kind of like, doing like weird proofreading and, and some copy editing and shit and like eking out a living. Uh, and then meanwhile, in the meantime, sort of raising this son she had as a single mom. Uh, and Just a quick point of clarification. Ludo is not his legal name, right? There was something at the hospital where like, they, they just were like checked a box and he's like legally named like Steven or David or something. I don't think we ever find out what his actual legal name is. Yeah, he doesn't have. I mean, his legal name is Stephen, I believe, which is why when she goes to like that parent-teacher consultation for his school application, she keeps having to say it. Um, but it, yeah, that that's all part and parcel with like all the themes that are going on, where she's kind of giving him this like weird education, uh, homeschool kind of thing based off of like J.S. Mill and Yo-Yo Ma's dad, and and, and movies as uh in lieu of any sort of father figure and all this kind of weird shit which i think it's uh, kind of just worth mentioning because i thought i think it's funny that she just like refers to the male like you know uh teacher yo-yo ma's dad as mr ma 
which is just Mr. Mom. Mr. Mom, <laughs> I fucking didn't catch that. Fuck. Is it racist to laugh at that? Yes. <laughs> I, That's a good movie. Um, For the record, I did I did not laugh, and Matt did. So I, uh, I laughed. Everybody, uh, thank you. Guess I'm in the clear. I'm in the clear. <laughs> You're on the right side of history, Paul. It's <laughs> good. <laughs> uh, but I'm so, just gonna, wait. I want to just interject that you know, being raised on movies and and uh, silly books, like that's really no different than you know now being raised on the internet. So kind of like yeah. a pre precursor to the internet age, I would say. This is uh, interesting because you know I, the book I'm, was like primarily written just like there's a computer in it that Sibylla uses to work on, but like it's just shy of you know the dot com boom and any sort of ubiquity of a computer. It's mostly in the early 90s, like 90 to 93. Um, so, yeah, he just doesn't have that, which is kind of interesting. But he ends up being, I mean, he's a genius. He ends up being a fucking, like, weird genius, right? I feel like there's supposed to be some controversy about whether or not he's just the product of this type of education and anyone could be. But there's no fucking way. Yeah, I think team. that was. I think that was an interesting, like, tension i mean i don't want to like talk about the dewitts afterward yet but i have some as someone who's as an educator who specifically t teaches for future teachers in in an education department i had some thoughts about her sort of concluding thoughts but i mean my yeah my assumption throughout the text was that the, the kid was basically just a prodigy like because it's it also seemed like like once you get a sort of glimpse into his head it's pretty clear that he's like actually not really getting much out of the way she's trying to teach him. He's always kind yeah. of like way ahead and just kind of like, let's fucking just get this out of the way so I can do the shit I actually want to do. Right. And what he wants to do is, uh, you know, do what a kid wants to do, which is like, he's told not to ever inquire as to who his father is. So like, I would say like the second half of the book is like him just seeking out, uh, a father figure and uh he finds his actual father is disappointed and goes on a quest to sort of gather superior dads uh and it uh, gotta and, catch them all dude. It, it really is he's like yeah. po <laughs> pokemon dad edition <laughs> i i formally propose a change of the name of the podcast to superior dads <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like I don't know. It it concludes, I think, pretty pretty grimly. Uh, I don't know how y'all felt about it, but like, I you know, it. Well, can I can we go back to that question about about like whether his genius is like you know he's born with it or whether it's you know the product of his mom's education? Because yeah, that was like the that was like the 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 main you know I mean obviously the main theme of the whole book was like the the idea of genius, right? But like. You know, I think about our culture and our culture kind of has like a fraught relationship with the idea of genius, right? Because um, I think like, you know, a contemporary or, you know, even within the last couple of decades, American culture is more of the sort of Malcolm Gladwell style of thinking where it's like, <laughs> oh, just put put in 10,000 hours or, you know, keep all you have to do is work hard. And that's how you achieve greatness is like you if you work hard enough and like in my mind, it's like, no, like some people are just born with these preternatural, like, you know, insane, mystical, magical abilities. 
And so like, uh, there were times in the book where it's like, clearly his, he was just this kind of preternatural genius, but like, there was also this like weird sort of frame where it was like, she's making him, she's, he's reading, he, he has to like, uh, collect all the coins, all the badges and read all the books right. you're supposed to read. And that's how he becomes smart. And it's like, you know, which is it, I guess, you know, I don't know. Well, there's, there's like a highly traditional notion of education mixed with it just kind of not being the prevailing notion of education. Like, I feel like Ludo's education yeah. is just kind of a, I mean, it's a JS, it's, it's like 90% just JS mill, right? Like mm-hmm. already a person who I'm like, uh, <laughs> And and like so, it's literally just like a, a throwback almost to like. I, I do you guys know what like old forms of education were like? Because I actually was thinking about you just all this like stuff. you like, memorize a lot of shit and like recite. Like I feel like, like it was like a lot learning, of re- right? recitation. Yeah. yeah. Yep. There's a lot. Yeah. It was a lot of rote like repetition. Like like Daniel was saying, and like it was all. It was definitely very like punitive a lot of the time. Like. <laughs> you know, yeah. do this thing, like, or else you're going to get fucking, like, locked out in the cold. Like, literally, like, some, yeah. like, like John Locke wrote on education, and one of his main things was, like, if they fuck up, throw them in the snow. Like, literally. <laughs> so, it sounds like education used to be, like, a, like a Chinese Olympic teacher. Like, if you don't stress sorry, this way oh, for 45 minutes, you get thrown out. I'm sorry, your Yo-Yo Ma shit is now all, you, you wasted <laughs> your good graces. <laughs> you're on our side now, man. Yeah, welcome. Oh, yeah. Plus, I think you're thinking of Russian gymnastics teachers. Or gymnastics. Or just gymnastics. Yeah, <laughs> Which yeah, is like yeah. fucking, tor- is like shit is child <laughs> abuse, pretty much. But yeah, like corporal punishment was like, re- remained as an element of education until mid 20th century well so it's interesting because yeah. i mean maybe... i still i still practice it in my classes today <laughs> good yeah in what form parody you walk around with, you, walk around, joke. It's, it's, yeah. you walk around with a uh with a yardstick and slap their hands if they're on their phones <laughs> no but it's, i did i went to uh i went to catholic school per- personally i went to catholic like you know high school or whatever and uh our detention was called jug like if you got detention you got jugged uh, J-U-G, and it stood for Justice Under God. And uh, what it involved was you had to stand, you had to stand and either for 30 minutes or an hour, depending on how bad the offense was, you had to stare, stand and stare at a wall for 30 minutes or an hour and you could not move. And if you move, they like had a person walk around and if anyone moved, uh, you got like another jug. So it was like a, Jesus, you know, it's pretty intense, I guess. I'm I, wow. I would love to I would love to go to detention with multiple jugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, baby. But I'm boobs. Yeah. Bless. Yeah. If you, Easy way out of that, right? Just shit your hands. <laughs> yeah, that's a good move. People aren't as jokerfied as that. They're not thinking outside the box as much, you know. Yeah, that's a total jokerfied move. I you know, I don't even know if I could do that if someone like pay like was like i'll pay you a lot of money to like shit your pants like could you shit spot. right now could you no. shit your pants right now i could not no i couldn't if someone I, paid, yeah i was this close to sharding today like for real in my pants <laughs> Fun so, fact about me last year in 2020 i peed my my pants twice in my truck and i peed my pants one of, one of the same days i peed myself <laughs> so damn dude well that's okay yeah. 2020 was like you know the, yeah, it's the year that doesn't count so it's yeah, like everyone yeah. was in vegas that day yeah <laughs> so I, so so I, I just wanted to just get some clarity on the js mill thing mill 
uh, is a, is a, enters the story as someone that Ludo finds on his own, right? Like that's not something that Sibylla is consciously using. It's, she's more on the like yo-yo ma train and just like making him watch Seven Samurai over and over again. Am I, am I misremembering that? Like, I feel like he finds Mill on his own later on in the story. Uh, you're casting doubt. My impression was that it's like the spine of the whole educational, you know, system that Sibla has going on is Mill, Mr. Ma, and the Kurosawa movie on loop. Well, also the Odyssey, right? Isn't he reading the Odyssey at the beginning? Yeah, she starts off with a lot of like the the like Greek and Greek classics, and uh, it's a, like a so lot of is, languages right? education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's um, that's off of Mill's accomplishments as a kid. Because... Well, right. He finds Mill later and then is like, oh, yeah, yeah. oh, I'm stupid because this guy learned these languages before me. And it's yeah, he like, like starts he learned to doubt it at himself. two yeah. and I learned it at three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like it was kind of like Qui-Gon saying there's always a bigger fish. Yeah. <laughs> that yes, dude. <laughs> it's one of those moments, you know. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, whatever, it, it's not super material, I don't think, but it, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting because the first, I feel like, yeah, like you said, Matt, there's basically two halves to the book. The first half is kind of describing more from the Sibylla's perspective, her dealing right. with sort of young Ludo when he's like, like very, very small, like one, two, three, four, and their sort of life together. Uh, and then the second half is sort of fast forwards a little bit once Ludo enters public school and then leaves instantly. And then we fast forward to him as like a, you know, teenager and his sort of quest to, to, to find the best fucking dad. The best. And it also switches, uh, it switches uh, point of view too, from syllabus yes. to like halfway through. Yes. Well, and I think his whole, his whole dad quest is another instance, Paul, like you were saying of the Qui-Gon bigger fish moment, because each successive dad that he interacts with like fails or like sucks really bad in some way. And, and he's sort of exploring like, you know, different expressions of genius and, and, you know, we'll get to, to all that maybe in more detail. Hey. Uh, musical geniuses are the best by the way. The piano. <laughs> yeah. Preview I, for my uh, hot take. I'm going to have later on, I guess. Qui-Gon Jin more like Qui-Gon dad. Pretty good. Thanks. I needed a lot of open. <laughs> okay, I'll give one. you that. I'll give you that. <laughs> you were, you were uh, sitting on it. I was. <laughs> I think also, you know, yeah. The, again, it's this, this little tiny afterward at the end of the book. And I know we're just jumping crazily from one thing to the next, but like, it does. It did lend to the notion that maybe Helen Dewitt like genuinely believes this it was so, very specific. It was so tonally weird to me. However, the book itself doesn't didn't have me thinking that I at agree. all. I agree. I mean, I think so. So so Sibylla, the mom, like as a character, you know, their life together is not super. Um, you know, they're kind of poor. Like they just will go around on cold days riding the subway so they don't have to turn on the heat in their apartment and shit, right? And it, yeah. engaging in philosophical debates with the the other passengers. Yeah, and she yeah. just and she just will fucking sometimes pop off, right? Yeah. Like like someone she will just seems crazy. Like, she seems totally I mean, yeah. what a 
that that one like classic hypothetical of like all right if one guy if two guys are about to be burned at the stake and one guy dies of a heart attack right before is the the several minutes of life that the other guy lived while burning alive does that make his life more meaningful and i'm like what the fuck kind of hypothetical is this she's just she's she's just the classic like the she's the classic ma'am this is a wendy's person like just (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like just like like popping off on people for not knowing the intricacies of the plot of the last samurai on the subway and throwing these crazy philosophical hypotheticals at them for no fucking reason well i know this gets tossed around a ton but like there was a bit of an autism vibe here oh her. yeah i wanted to get into that yeah and it's i mixed. didn't want to say it but you did <laughs> <laughs> you're being so woke right now i hate it uh <laughs> there's a. Uh, it, it, but it's mixed with Gabe. I think you mentioned this, off, you know, on text chain or whatever. But like, this Sybil is deeply. She is so depressed, and it's like that combo, mixed with that weird little like uh, prelude where it's describing like the trajectory of her dad and mom. I yeah, like, I think that it's it's so you know we've talked about the seven samurai and how she she watches it on loop over and over again and like in her mind in the beginning of the book she kind of sets it up as like this is these are the you know because he's not going to know his father and i don't want him to know his father uh this is going to be his like example of his like male role models and she's like just does this bizarre calculation where she's just like yeah uh he doesn't have a father so i'll just give him seven male role models in this movie <laughs> and like that's a crazy thing to think on the face of it and then over the course of the book she just starts getting deeper and deeper into this this state where she's basically like working at her job as a typist or whatever for like you know 10 minutes a day and then just looping the last samurai over and over again yeah which just becomes like, know, uh, or it's just like an, a, a, a sort of like a, a nervous tick more than than any anything to do with enjoying oneself or education. This might be a stupid take, but do you guys think that because there's so many father figures in the Last Samurai, that's why he was on such a dad quest and wasn't accepting of just reading one, like just being like, oh, this is my father. I met him. I'm gonna move on. He well, like, I think that's kind of the whole seeking. thing, right? He like has, if unless I'm miss, unless I'm, my math is off or something. He goes through six fathers, and then he's he is the seventh samurai. Does that happen in the in the movie? Does no, that's not the, no, so no, no, no. That's not the movie. But I'm just saying, like, if we're sticking with this, like, all the the fathers are the samurai. He goes through sort of six of the six of them and then sort of becomes self-sufficient or something by the end, maybe. I think one of the peasants in that movie or something again, yeah, didn't watch it, haven't watched it recently, becomes an honorary samurai. Yeah, if I remember, it's like there's one like older samurai guy that they get to like protect their farm. And then he kind of like you know like trains seven other like misfit like not you know they they he elevates them to like samurai status or whatever basically helen dewitt's gonna listen to this episode and be like these fucking like drooling hogs don't know shit about the samurai (laughs) (laughs) i mean like i don't know if sibla gets it necessarily 
is are, are do we is Sibylla a genius are we comfortable saying that she's like a genius in the same way that uh her son is no I don't know I think she's like really highly educated and probably on some sort of spectrum like we said but I think that he's like a super so, genius yeah they seem of a different she, kind yeah and she's just like I, I just took her as being like hyper educated and hyper into anything with an intellect yeah you can I tell think... you can tell she, she's someone he's going to be embarrassed of soon you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> i think sibylla's character so like daniel you said earlier that one of the main themes of the book is like this the nature of genius and sort of like you know what what you know how do we identify genius what does it mean what does it mean in the context of education i think one of the other big themes of the book is is family and like what it means to be in a family and what it means to sort of like love your <clears throat> you know the people that you're forced to be around because you were yeah. born near them and i think sibylla is operating for me i mean maybe i was just reading this in a fucking dumb dumb lefty way but like she seems to be operating from a deep place of class anxiety for a lot of the book she has this like like um repeated refrain where she talks about like you know no you don't know what it's like to be from a town where the most exciting thing is a new motel or something right because her family that's how they made their money is by sort of um Mo moteliers they're like moteliers moteliers <laughs> And so I think she sort of is is coming from this place of like, I want to be this educated person. I want to be this sort of cultural elite, sort of because of her own background to some degree. Her her dad, her dad was again, her both her parents were people like of some sort of promise with yeah. a talent that got thwarted by like the necessary just sort of need of of I guess making well, money. Well, they were is, Jews, is right? One. Weren't they Jews? that were like uh, dis discriminated against because of their Jewish faith. His mom or her mother's side was Jewish. Oh, okay. Uh, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Cause like her mother's father, her grandfather was, uh, yeah. From Europe somewhere. I forget. But the dad was just like, you know, he, he was kind of like Ludo a bit. Yeah. 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 And then his dad was like, I don't know, somehow, somehow convinced him to go to a seminary instead of Harvard. And, uh, <laughs> So, so that little bit of historical wound to try both into, sides, right? You know, see how the other half lives. I think he literally says or something like that. Like, don't knock it till you try it, aka being a basically a priest or something. Uh, yeah, he ends up becoming well, like a weird um, like pool uh, shark. Being a monk, monks monkdom is a is a t uh, variety of genius. I don't know if you know this. Is it a spiritual yeah. genius? Spiritual genius. Yeah. <laughs> Nirvana but so I, genius. so like i mean so why the you know the book itself didn't strike me as something that was purely just suggesting a superior a uh, superior alternative sort of way to live and educate is that there's a lot of like baggage everyone has that they're kind of constantly bringing to the table and they're just kind of all reacting they're all very reactionary to their immediate circumstances and just doing the classic thing of like hard swing against as an entire as their entire identity did okay did you did anyone pick up on uh just talking about sibylla again a little bit as a character in the first half of the book when we're still sort of in her perspective um there's a 
there's like a few moments that it's not like a prominent thing, but it happens like four or five times, I think, where she describes being spoken to by this entity called the alien. Yes. And then it's just kind of dropped as far as I can tell. Like certainly once we switch to Ludo's perspective and we never really get any kind of like, uh, you know, resolution to, to this entity or whatever that's talking to her. And I, I just wondered how that factored into your thinking about her as a character. That is where the autism thing first entered my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she struck me as like autistic almost as much as like her son. Uh, See, I think her son is just a genius who is homeschooled. And that's why he's kind of weird, but he can make people laugh in the book and stuff. Sybil is never comfortable in literally like any social uh, exchange she has. Yeah. Well, like when, uh, well, it's also, I was wondering if it was like, if that was actually her or, or if we as the reader, like, because it was told from her perspective, like we were, we were seeing her, the, like her mind, her thoughts or whatever was like mm. the, like the text itself. And so it's like, you know, if I were to think about like, if my thoughts were to be transcribed onto paper, they would probably sound mildly autistic, right? That's fair. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't always say everything that's in my head, but like, I just remember like that, like when she uh, sleeps with Liberace or whatever, and she's like, she wakes up after, <laughs> after they have sex. And then she has like this, like three page long, like uh, discussion <laughs> in her head about how she's going to leave without like offending him. And she decides to leave him a note with like, <laughs> a fucking Rosetta stone, you know, like, <laughs> like that shit is like, okay. You know, uh, but again, I don't know if that's just all in her head or if like, that's really how she is. You know what I'm saying? But she did leave the note. So she it's did, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all in her head, but then she did leave like a five page note of like transcribed and transliterated like Greek. Yeah. Homeric so she, like prose. Yeah. <laughs> so that he could translate a poem that like was relevant to a conversation, a, like one random point in a conversation they had earlier at the party. And then she would write like chow at the end. Yeah. So I think she is on the spectrum. Like, I, like, I don't think she really knows how, or she, she at least just has severely limited like social skills, you know, that was really, yeah, I, feel, I did want to bring up this. That was kind of like when I started to actually absolutely hate her, but now that you guys are calling her borderline on the spectrum. I'm like, crap can i say i hate these characters or is that not well sure uh but yeah i i pretty much hated her and her precocious little prodigy butthole son <laughs> <laughs> well that, that, that's but that's a good point because like what is this identity because i feel like there's like the identity of a genius you know it's like it's a common it's almost like a stock character in our culture now where it's like you know, you could look at like tons of movies from the past couple decades or books or whatever. Fucking, what's that Jonathan Safran Four book with the extremely loud? No, yeah, that kid, that kid's yeah. like a genius Incredibly too, close. right? Yeah, yeah. And then there's like, um, I don't know. I'm thinking of like a Beautiful Mind and like you know all these Goodwill Hunting, Goodwill Hunting, and it's we like had Eddie Redmayne with the the um, Hawking movie, right? Yeah, yep. and it's like there's there's clearly like a genius identity that we have sort of assembled, I guess. And I I don't know, it's always kind of there's a there's always a little bit of anti-hero-ness to it. Like so my question to you guys is like is the is the genius character in our stories are they inherently an anti-hero or is there such a thing as like a non uh anti-hero genius or a genius non-anti-hero, I guess? 
I, like, I, I agree. I didn't really like the son either. I thought I was just like, I did, I, I'll, I, I'll say I grew to like him a lot more over the course of the story. Yeah. And like by the end, like I found the ending to be like an, a, 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 a sort of satisfying, like expression of as close as he will ever get to love. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the, the end of the, the end of the book, what he, his sort of final act. But um, I do think on this question of like the, the conception of genius in general, um, even something, the other thing that I would throw in the mix there recently is the fucking Queen's Gambit, which yeah. is about a... Oh, I was a, thinking a about prodigy. that. I was thinking about that exactly. Because she is yeah. like, she's kind of an antihero, but I, I kind of liked her. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's you know, damaged and like has some... She's, you know, an, her, addict. she's her, an addict. Yeah, exactly. Her thing is drugs rather than some, maybe some biological thing or whatever, if we, if we even want to use that term. But yeah, I think definitely... Um, we I, we have this sort of cultural obsession with figures of genius, and of course, there's a couple genius chess players in this story too. There's a, a sort of extended like uh, parable about yeah. them. Um, I think you think of the term prodigy like in direct relationship to chess. I feel like specifically oh, yeah. or music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, or like, music. That's like the other big fucking one for sure. Mozart or some shit. And there's a musical prodigy in this story as well. Right, yeah. prodigy yeah. is like prodigy is attached to like some like formal arts or something. I, I, I'm yeah, just, like high art, you know. Yeah, with like firmly established rules. I don't know. What I would also call someone like Neo a prodigy, and this the Matrix came out one year before this book, so I think she ripped it off. And I think the, <laughs> the prodigy, the musician, was also in the Matrix soundtrack. The prodigy was uh, around yes. way before that. Yeah, prodigy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So this book is plagiarism. Episode over. We've been really like busting open a lot of plagiarism with all the books we've been reading. Yeah, we're exposing yeah. the truth. We're like the uh, the the magician guy on Fox who exposed all the magician secrets. <laughs> yes, sir. What is that? QAnon? Are you talking about QAnon? <laughs> no, like back in like, like a decade ago, like uh, the masked magician, some guy went right, on Fox right, and was like, "That's right, what it fucking right. is." I'm gonna tell the industry secrets, and he showed how they do all the magic tricks. What I love about that is like it. It's so funny that like it's such a huge deal when someone comes on and explains how magic is done. Like it's some crazy thing. It's like we we should all know it's fake already. <laughs> Like without someone having to like walk us through it, I just want to believe, dude. I want to believe. This is what I rewatched um, uh, the Prestige recently, and that's easily like a, probably a top two uh, Christopher Nolan movie. Tesla I genius. I love that movie's good, dude. The Prestige. It is very good. It is a good movie. Yeah, yeah. One guy Isn't is just it, uh, so much crazily more. Dedicated to beating another guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, is that the one with uh, uh, who plays Tesla in that movie? David Bowie. Uh, David Bowie, dude. Yeah. 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 F F, F F F F's in the chat. F's in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Christian Bale and fucking Hugh Jackman play the the dueling uh, magicians. Oh yeah, Hugh but, Jackman. Yeah. But anyway. Huge. Jackman. I, I don't want to take over the conversation, but I had one other big thought was like, can we rank like which kind of genius is the best? Oh, uh, fuck yeah. Because I think I think musical genius is the best, honestly. Whoa. Because 
in my mind, like, and this is kind of just like reinforced by this book, like uh, music is this kind of beautiful combination of both like so, uh, like math, because there's like a mathematical component to music, but also like language, because, you know, like there's a musical language, and but also there's like a, like an artistic and compositional quality to it, because you have to like, uh, you know, compose and arrange things. So it's like, in my mind, music kind of like brings together all the different like things that you can be a genius in into one central like expression and so the musical geniuses are actually the highest level of genius in my opinion Ooh, bold claim i don't know i don't know to me it's hard to like rank geniuses across all categories like i don't even there's so many factors for me i mean kobe okay, Bryant, I'll jump kobe in Bryant the, would be up the there counter claim uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, athletic <laughs> genius. Uh, like, yeah, I, let's. We, I want to get to physical it. intelligence is legit. <laughs> I, yeah, Tom Brady. Uh, <laughs> what can you say at this point? Um, I mean, I would say okay, and I'm not. Ju- I, I think you made a compelling case, Daniel, for musical genius. I mean, yeah. I think for me, I, and I'm not just saying this because of the Queen's Gavin. I fucking played chess when I was a kid. I played semi competitively. The people who fucking just preternaturally get chess on the this deep level it's it's insane to me what what they're able to do is that a uh, is that a subset of of mathematical genius though i don't know it's, like, it's, 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 it's just an expression of like math i think it's mathematical genius but i also think it's like artistic genius in a way because it's about patterns and like visual structures um even more so than it is about mathematics like there's not a ton of math in chess like you can you can do a lot you can do math about like okay how many options does this so it's move not, open it's not or like close poker. off or whatever you can't do like card counting no it's definitely not like poker yeah no 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 definitely not well, um and i also will just say that i think i i'm more impressed by it at some levels because i'm a very competitive person and like chess just being like the most open information game that's available like you just you just beat people. If you're better, you just win. You're, and you just fucking you're can see not everything the other people are doing. You're not smarter than me. Dude, you're, you're not. fucking not. Well, I think to, Rook to, to Bishop Five, bitch. Yeah, the Fianchetto, <laughs> Fianchetto wager. Well, well, yeah, no, the, but the, the literally the Sicilian. Though. I just Sicilian your ass, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just nigh nigh dorked your mom. I'm um, so bad at chess. I I don't know Epstein, shit about I, this, dude. Switcheroo. When I was a <laughs> when I was a kid, I was really into chess, <laughs> and I bought I bought a nice like chess board. It had like the frosted glass and everything, and I played my neighbor. And mm. I was into it for like two months, and I was like, you know, playing online and all this shit. And he beat me in three moves, and I've never played since. <laughs> owned, owned. You got fooled. Like, you got fooled. Not for you me. got fools mated, bro. You got fools mated. We heard our, yeah, friend, like, okay. our friend our friend Andrew was a, a speed chess guy. Yeah, he's and he went down and, and fucked with those dudes in Washington Square Park uh and got played. <laughs> wow. But the whole like even you know, they like the scene from the show, just because it's something a lot of people probably seen where they're in the car and they're playing a game just verbally, but keeping track yeah. in their head. That's a type of like spatial modeling shit that like is just insane to me and people really i I don't have like my mind doesn't whatever kind of mind you need to be good at chess i don't have you know like i just don't think that way like 
the, you know, the idea of like seeing like four, five, 10 moves ahead. Like I just cannot process, like my brain cannot process that for whatever reason. I don't know. Yeah. So I think maybe that's like just a, why I don't like it. A high level of like visual abstraction that you need to, and I, I don't have that either. Yeah. But even, but I even want to someone, talk about, okay, Paul, go ahead, oh, Paul, sorry. I just wanted to get back to Daniel's point a little bit about like music being the best genius. Is there a proponent of like, uh, like the finished product of that genius is something tangible that other people can experience. Does that make it better for you? I think that's part of it, but um, you know, there's, there's a sort of social or component or experiential component to a lot of different types of genius. You know, even like you were saying, like Kobe, you said Kobe Bryant would like be up there. Like, you know, I can watch, like we can watch Kobe Bryant play, you know, and that's the same, that's kind of the same thing as listening to like a really great song, I guess. Um, so, so yes, I do think that like, I do think being able to consume and experience, uh, some expression of genius is important to, to being able to rank it. But I, I guess my, my, just a point was just that like music to me brings together some of the fun, like brings together more of the fundamental, like elements or ingredients of genius, like math and composition and language, uh, more explicitly, I guess, than like anything else I can think of, you know, but even, even someone like Einstein who, you know, uh, he made mathematical breakthroughs via there's that, whatever that famous anecdote he told where like it, when, when kind of like breaking, uh, special relativity or whatever, he, he like was, st he was visualizing like, uh, an, an atomic clock on like a train <laughs> with like two, two mirrored, like spheres or like two mirrored like planes like and a photon jiggling back and forth on like a moving train and like the amount of visual abstraction that's required to to create the notion that he then proves mathematically is well and that's just fucking straight up creativity like exactly that, like that example too you know what i mean like i mean i also that's think what it's what i was trying to say with composition or whatever like is creativity right. yeah yeah well and and i think well i mean I think that's a question that's just sort of asked in the book. Cause like, I don't think Ludo, cause Ludo doesn't land on anything. Like he's, he's, I mean, he's fucking 11 years old, <laughs> which I, is hard to remember at, at all times because he's, you know, talking to grown men who treat him. He as, doesn't, as he them. never gets into his teens at the end. Like is it, he's 11 by the end. I think oh, he's I 12. He I don't think he even gets, yeah, he doesn't even make it there. Okay, but okay. like, He's not landed on anything. He's he's not a genius in a specific way. He's kind of like just, uh, you know, he's kind of flying in the face of specialization, which I think is one of the criticisms that DeWitt has about education. Uh, mm -hmm. And like, you know, she kind of throws a little bit of shade at STEM and stuff for its like practicality at, above all else and all that kind of stuff. But like, um, yeah, we don't yeah, have we don't have polymaths anymore. You know, yeah, that's no, the, right. I think that's the thing. And then the biggest question is like that I don't think is really answered satisfactorily is like it, it seems to be more about what, what your entry point is. Like there's a lot of resources that can be just sort of, uh, at, you know, available to you kind of ambiently. But like, what are you kind of forced to start doing when and how does that affect I, your perception of what you can do later? Yeah. Yes. So it's, I think it's definitely a developmental question or the way it's posed in the book. And I think like, 
because the book, the, the structure of the second half of the book kind of runs through the gamut of a lot of these types of genius that we've been talking about, right? Like there's there's a guy who's a traditional kind of STEM science genius who becomes a public like figure, has a television show, and he's like a kind of like a Carl Sagan yeah. type figure. Um, and then, you know, there's a, a, a guy who, you know, is a, a, a painter, like an artistic genius. There's the, the worst, the worst um, kind of genius. He, <laughs> yeah. no, i did i did recently watch the um that movie though at eternity's gate with uh willem dafoe playing uh, oh. van gogh and it, what did you think oh, of i've that never movie? heard of that i liked it a lot i mean i love oh, willem dafoe i, it. Oh, I liked I it, it but it, it, gave, it gave me like a weird appreciation for painting that i didn't really realize i had but anyway sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no, 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 no. That's I would rather hear you guys talk about that because no. Paul's so you said so you said then person. then we get the painter genius. Then who else? Yeah. So we got the painter, the 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 STEM genius. Yeah, yeah. His original his his real father is like a travel writer. Yeah, he'd um, just be writing like life and lifestyle blogs, basically. If he yeah, so yeah, genius. <laughs> he'd be like yeah, an Instagram you know. influencer today. Right. And then one of the other guys is like one of the youngest people to ever get admitted to Oxford, and he's like a chess player and um and then uh there's the musical there's the piano player the musical guy as well later at the very end of the book and i mean i think it's interesting to just sort of think about like what sorts of things we admit the term admit of the term genius yeah. as a descriptor right like you know what i mean like could there be and i wonder if that's not a limitation is lebron of, not, james maybe a not genius. the book Right. Yes. Or like, could you be, could you be a, a genius? Could you be like a genius friend? Right. Could you be a <laughs> yeah. genius fucking, you know, romantic partner? Yeah, can you be a you know genius I mean? like this, in compassion or empathy? Yeah, exactly. Like the things we just use the word genius to describe. I think that's an interesting thing that, that comes out in the book as well. Is the Dalai Lama a compassionate genius? Yes. Mother Teresa. I would say, yeah. yeah. I think those are, yeah, those are good examples. Well, what what you do is you end up just sort of, I don't know, dis, like destroying, or I don't know, ubiquitizing genius a bit in like I think a a good way, you know, or like yeah, you make it you make it ha have so many more facets than just like some, you know, just not Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know about you know, I know Gabe, you know, Gabe is the other educator, uh, here, but like I don't know about you, but I'm all about like expanding what like. I think we need to expand what uh, we mean by education and what we, you know, I think we have too narrow of a definition. And so I think that also tr translates to like, we too narrowly define genius, you know, or, or smart mm. or whatever you want to call it. Like, I think people can be smart in a lot of different ways. And it's weird. Cause it's like, we, we do have that notion in our, in our culture. Like we do have this idea of like multiple intelligences, but yeah. we don't really like, like we pretend like we do, but like at the end of the day, we're just, we, we, what we actually really only value is like a very narrow kind of smartness. I feel like you know one saying? of, I, I, I co-sign all of that. And just one of my favorite expressions of that was um, a few years ago, there was a, I think it was like a Vox video that went kind of viral uh, analyzing some MF doom bars uh, F in the chat, by the way, MF in um, the chat. RIP. RIP. And it was just the classic, like, white people converting everything to math, 
like video like yeah. they were literally just like oh yeah and then here he cuts off this word precisely 7.84 like syllables into the line and like dude Ugh. it's like no like i mean that's you're, you're ruining this yeah you're, yeah exactly so like why not just be like he's a genius at that you don't have to reduce it he's to a math genius or rapper, whatever. Yeah. yeah exactly but right, the thing about is, that oh, yeah, too that, is yeah like, that's that's a good example yeah but people do that in uh like classical music a lot too like rhetoric about classical music there's a lot of like this note was perfectly placed here so i don't i don't know if it's like oliver sacks this is, this is your brain on music kind of yeah and I, it to me it doesn't discount the genius of that world to for people to study in that way but i also you think it gets like back. I, yeah yeah no finish your thoughts yeah no, I just like I, I didn't read the article you're talking about, but I think there is some way of describe like trying to talk about like Eminem, Eminem's lyrics and the way he goes about writing that is like you, you can get into it and really get descriptive about it and study. I think there's thing. also like this I I mean, you know, not to be too vulgar Marxist or whatever, but like I think we also tend to only ascribe the 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 um, title of genius to things that are rewarded economically. So like, you know, we're, we'll, we will call Eminem or MF Doom a genius in rap or whatever, because they were successful, you know, financially, like or successful in their industry or whatever, or whatever. And so it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, genius is, is ultimately just a subset or it, it's ultimately just an expression of like what is rewarded or it's only considered genius if it, if you can make money off of it. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's part of why we don't yeah. have like robust discourses of genius for stuff like friendship or compassion or whatever. Yeah. Can we make, yeah. Can we make money off of being a genius friend? Well, <laughs> I, I think that kind of that, that uh, idea kind of makes its way into the book, not genius. I mean, I think also, yeah. Like what does all this stuff mean in terms of, ourselves and our interpersonal relationships and, and any sort of what like value in the larger sense not you know monetary value obviously but like they're poor and i think that's like a big part of it is like yeah they're, they're not getting rewarded for this they're they're kind of actively punished and regarded as weird and uh even through praise uh encouraged to conform a bit more um I actually think that's a really good point, Matt. And I think it also speaks to something else that's important about our discourses of genius, which is that if you're a genius, you're either like super prestigious and successful or you're some kind of freak. Right. And I think that like this book with its characterization of Ludo and Sybil's sort of life and their relationship, like kind of walks that line in a really interesting way. And that's what the dads are. They're like... They're just various avatars for types of prestige a lot of the time, it seems. They're like the Carl Sagans and the fucking, you know, yeah, like the gene, the, the artists, the millionaire artists. The Basquiat. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Just like the all the types of ways that, you know, daredevil, you know, journalist. Uh but like you know, I think a lot of at least recently in our culture, there's a lot of backlash against th th those types. Like, I mean, you guys you know, I know you guys have, have joked about it on some of the pot, uh, episodes I've heard, I've listened to, but you know, like the sort of anti David Foster Wallace thing where it's like, <laughs> it's like the, the, there's, there's an entire identity about hating David Foster Wallace that 
as far as I have ever encountered, like I've met way more people who hate people who like David Foster Wallace than actually people who like David Foster Wallace, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like my opinion is like David Foster Wallace is fine. Like I like, I've liked some of the stuff I've read by him, you know, or whatever, but there's this whole fucking like genre of essay. That's like, you know, David Foster Wallace, the danger of teach of treating of David Foster Wallace as a genius or some shit. And it's like, right. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. It's just like, we have like this weird fraught relationship now where I feel like, you know, some things are, are, it's okay to be a genius in some ways, but not others, you know? Well, and, know. yeah, no, I think that's right. And I also think like, just to, to sort of get back to the point I was making earlier about Sybil's kind of class status and her class history, you know, the other thing is that there's all always economic and class aspects to this too. Like even, you know, Matt mentioned mm -hmm. Elon Musk a minute ago, right? Like <laughs> one of the, that you know, I don't, I fucking dumbass. <laughs> Yeah. yeah exactly he right and all like, the, in all the ways that count he's what, fucking stupid. that's what i'm saying right he always so like what elon musk is a genius at is having fucking rich like apartheid <laughs> parents uh, like, yeah he uh, also that, that is a kind, have, that is a kind of basically genius, yeah. Yeah. genius of privilege i would say <laughs> privilege genius. Yeah. Yeah. don't weaponize our very notion against us uh, he always seems to have like some sort of liquid that's about to come out of his mouth too like, the way <laughs> The way he speaks is just so odd to me. He's like, <laughs> I, I, I wish I could do an impression, but like, it's like he has dentures that aren't totally in or something. I don't know. I mean, his hair, uh, his hair, his hair's fake. His teeth might as well be. Yeah, he did get. He, you know, he definitely has enough money for uh, plugs or whatever. I saw a picture. Success, successful plugs. I saw like a before and after picture of Elon Musk recently. And it was, it's that classic picture of him with next to the like, not, like nineties computer with the PayPal thing being like, and he's got the fucking bald, whatever, whatever. And then a picture <laughs> of him of him today. And I'm just like, this guy is fucking Benjamin buttoning it. And it's like <laughs> sick. Well, he's now, he's now the richest person in the world, right? Like, didn't he, is he, I think he, wow. or at least temporarily overtook Bezos yep. because fucking tesla is inflate like the value of that company it's it's super inflated but you know. well see it's it's funny because we keep dancing around like uh i don't know saying point counterpoint almost to this kind of thing right like elon musk i you know ascribing genius to a person and therefore some sort of supernatural infallibility in their decision making and their desires and you know blah 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 isn't is a great argument against a person like that where you're like no this person isn't some fucking tech god you know god emperor of dune worm person he's 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 a dork and he's probably bad <laughs> and, he, and he's just you know riding off of apartheid blood diamond money uh in the meantime though there's also like this fear of genius uh penetrating too many categories and like becoming too wishy-washy as a notion but then also like afraid of people being described it because it's like a privileged position well uh, it makes me think of uh this this when i was watching jordan peterson videos in a dark time in my life like three years ago he talked about uh brave of you to say he he talked about the word genius and how he basically only relates it to like how high your iq is and he he actually well, talked about like he <laughs> talked about like physical genius. He was like, "You you can't be a physical genius. <laughs> genius only relates to the mind and your IQ." 
this uh, well this is a great point because yeah. one of my one of my questions was like the idea of relative versus absolute genius right so like you know normally the we can't we can't like in some sense we it's impossible to have a genius in a vacuum right we can only def- we can only recognize recognize genius as like oh you are like all the way at the on the right of the bell curve right you are better you are so good at this thing because you're better than everybody else right so like in some sense genius is inherently relative like tiger wood like i'm watching this tiger woods uh documentary right and it's like well he's a genius at golf because he's better than all the other golfers right but it's like is there is there an objective uh absolute measure that we can say someone is a genius by or is it just always based on like you can only be defined as a genius relative to other peers who are competing in the same category you know what i'm saying i would fucking i would fucking whip thomas edison's ass at mario kart (laughs) (laughs) and i would whip your ass whoa (laughs) well it makes me think i would lose i would lose too (laughs) I, suck I recently at saw video games dude i saw a headline recently that was like man with the highest iq of it's like 200 or something man with the highest iq uh is an avid trump supporter <laughs> right <laughs> it's like okay what is that okay because facts and logic nothing. don't care about your feelings bro it's like i couldn't exactly. care less what like you know the, the politics of people like i guess i i i'm, I'm not i wouldn't say i couldn't care less but like yeah, that, that's funny that we would equate like p- political pr- preferences with, you know, IQ scores. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's all yeah. I mean that 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 whole conversation is feels very broken and and weird. I think like just to I don't know steer it back to the book a tiny bit like, um, like Ludo right? He's a genius, but he's kind of a genius in 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 some of the like in some part in the ways that are like what's bad about the current educational system just it's just beefed up it's like he can sort of memorize a ton of shit and uh you know prove that that is doable on a much like more um ambitious scale for maybe kids that don't normally get exposure to that kind of stuff but like other than that you know He's 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 walking around trying to convince that uh that physicist in his head that he's like worthy of being his fake son because he knows a bunch of uh like fluid dynamics <laughs> equations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, the, the question with Ludo and his and and syllabus is like, <laughs> is their genius or their hyper intelligence related to a hyper enthusiasm? for the topics they like to learn about like and how much does that relate to anyone's genius really like Gabe you you were talking to us a few weeks ago about speedrunners and I mean I think you can classify like the best speedrunners in the world as maybe being geniuses shout outs shout outs shout outs to cheese he just broke the super mario 64 record like a couple years ago (laughs) yo bless but like how much how much is that just a hyper enthusiastic attitude towards any given topic you know well i think it's interesting i mean this is something that we talk about in education a lot i mean i think the the sort of relationship between like ability and practice right like there there are people who just to keep with the speed running metaphor a lot or chess right think about chess like that's something that's probably more relatable to most people 
there's people who are in the chess community who, you know, people are like, if they, they're so good, just kind of naturally, if they even practiced a little bit, like they'd be the best in the world, but they just don't fucking care. Right. They're just like, whatever, I'll play a little bit. I'll be pretty good. And then there's the people who just grind and like have like they memorize games front to back and like they, they just sort of practice over and over and over and over again and that's how they get good um and i think that you know both like i don't know if you get good at something just by grinding it over and over again maybe we can call you a genius of dedication or something you know what i mean like i don't know like a genius of self-discipline um well yeah i also think though that if you're grinding that much over any particular subject or game it can actually like open like if you're not an abstract thinker and you're not that good at chess when you first start but as you grind you learn more about it and that might actually like open up yourself to be able to think that way so it's a, to me it's a little bit of both i think ludo kind of proves himself to be more of a genius in the in the sense that i would say because initially he's uh, kind of got this like what he's a prodigy at is he seems to just have this kind of like eidetic memory and he he's able to retain a bunch of data points that like most people could not including myself right now uh what what yeah, seems he learns to, like five fucking languages by like age four or whatever by the end of the book he learned he knows 20 uh and you know yeah the question becomes what what's the use and is that the appropriate question to even ask about his achievements but then like i think what is not in question is that the the measure of this is what like humanities is all about, right? The measure of your synthesis of that stuff into some kind of self-sustaining, self-enriching and, and uh, pleasant worldview and kind of like identity, I guess, for lack of a... Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Cause like, you know, I have a, I have a two and a, what's, what is he now? Two and a half. Yeah, two and a half uh, year old nephew, mm -hmm. right? And... He can't fucking read <laughs> like, you know, yeah. and like that, that's the, the genius of Ludo was that he was reading at two or whatever, but there was this, but there was this other part of the book where it was like what he was reading and like, he was reading these classics and stuff. And it's like that to me, that's not real. That's kind of irrelevant to the genius part of it. Like the genius part was that he was reading and he was like, you know, hungry for, consuming all this stuff and he kept asking his mom like i want to learn a new language and i want to do this and i want to do that or whatever right um and so there was like there's this weird tension between like you know the content of what you consume versus your ability to consume it at an, an insanely early age but like uh, a genius in the humanities like you're talking about it's not so much about like the content of what you read but like Although maybe it is kind of about the content that you read. Like, I don't know actually what I think about that. Like the idea is like you can heighten the content, you can heighten the level and like complexity of the content you put in front of kids. I think that's kind of one of the things that I agree with, I suppose about the book. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. But it, but you, what you said was interesting was like the synth it's what matters in the humanities is how you synthesize the stuff. Right. Cause like, yeah, the, you can consume Seven Samurai and, you know, the Odyssey and all these like great, you know, pieces of art or whatever. 
but like that doesn't really matter so much as like what you do with it like how you synthesize it right do you yeah do you take do you take that the messages of those texts and like become like a better person with it because like i mean i think i guess that's maybe the ideal like sort of optimistic utopia utopian vision of the of a humanities education is like oh we have people read these books so that they become like better people right but that's like yeah. you know that's just a kind of a hope and a wish that, you know, I don't know. Well, I think that's like what, that's one of the things that I liked about Ludo's character is that like, I mean, I think you're, you're onto something important here, Daniel, about like what the nature of his genius is, because he's not like, he's not good at like one particular thing. I would say he's, he's not, he doesn't, and he doesn't create anything really. He doesn't invent anything. He's not like coming up with new mathematical formulas or anything he just is really good at like learning yeah, shit yeah. fast and he wants to like learn the best he wants student to learn ever stuff. yeah right he has the sort of like ideal of like you know what in my field you know paulo freire calls like epistemological curiosity like he just like is like fucking just is there for it you know what i mean but i so like i think it's that sort of characterization of his genius is really interesting because it goes along with like a deep level of humanity that he has. And like, in the sense that a lot of the shit that he winds up doing is like, you know, I'm his, you know, Sybil is telling him like, okay, if you learn this, I'll do this. If you learn this, you'll do this. He's like, okay, okay, okay. Like I'll do it. If you tell me my fucking dad's <laughs> name, like he just, he just ultimately like wants to know who his I, dad like, is. Syllabus, you know what dude, I mean? Which is like syllabus. Syllabus. <laughs> and, he's, yeah. and he's still in a Skinner box, essentially like every other fucking student still now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like he's he's he his motivations are ultimately deeply human. He's like I want to know who my yeah, fucking that's father true. is and like I, yeah, meet I, him. I hadn't really thought you know of what I, mean? I hadn't thought of that in, in that way, but yeah. And I thought that was like a really kind of like like subtle like addition to the way we're sort of engaging with him as this kind of like prodigy genius. And, and meanwhile, yeah, I think that. Uh, oh, sorry, go Paul. I was going to say I think that um, his personality is you can point to him being raised by his crazy mom and her personality and a lot of the ways that he ends up acting in his short life throughout the book can be pointed to her behavior. I think that the genius aspect of his personality actually, like you were saying, Daniel, doesn't necessarily come from her education and how she teaches him. I think that more so the way he acts interpersonally is, is from her. Uh, was, yeah, and I, that actually dovetails nice with what I was going to say, which is that, like, in the meantime, Sibylla becomes more and more of just sort of this impediment, and I think she just kind of remains in her own personal hell. I she I like she to me seemed like the more the more the book went on, hundred percent. The more I was like, this fucking person has tried to kill themselves. They're they're like they're like terminally depressed. Uh, they are quote unquote, you know, a, a, a boredom phobic. Uh, like it's just like this per and and she never changes. She becomes somebody who is eventually just this kind of thrombosis in the flow of Ludo's life, and she's and eventually Ludo has to kind of like navigate v like around her. Yeah, she which is deeply yeah. unhappy. Okay, Matt. Like, yeah. okay, this might be off my shit, but <laughs> uh, I was wondering if there was like a like sort of i don't know what the literary term is for this daniel maybe you know when you fucking mash two words together because i was thinking about that same thing about sibylla as this like 
obstacle that Ludo ultimately has to sort of like revolve around for his life and navigate through. And I was like, Sybilla, I was thinking of like Scylla and Charybdis, the fucking like two, mm. because the odd- portmanteau. Yeah, thank yes. you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, because of course the Odyssey and like Greek myth and shit figures prominently in Ludo's early education. And I was wondering if like Sybilla as a name was some weird mm. portmanteau mashup of like Scylla, Charybdis, and this, it's this fucking, fucking, you know, funnel that Ludo has to navigate around. Like Odysseus I wouldn't even did. put is that too I deep. Even, is that too much? I also wouldn't. I Paul, you said this is a joke. Syllabus just feels fine too to me as another thing that's just supposed yeah, to. Yeah, because she's just assigning Ludo shit to do every day. Like she is a syllabus to him. Like you need to, you know, read yes, this and then you can yes. read this. Fair I think it's true. Yeah. I think you're supposed to kind of. I mean, like Helen Dewitt herself seems, yeah, fairly. I, I mean, I've watched like two talks with her. She's she's fair. She's a she seems twitchy and very much likes syllaba and and <laughs> so this, this is yeah, like it is it is because i assume i mean you get the vibe it's kind of autobiographical um so yeah, i guess totally i mean she is. also tried to kill herself during and the she, process of making this book yeah and she's also she's also, also, an she's an also an, and she's an expat right she lives in like berlin or something now and she did live in london oh i didn't know that and is she like a is she, is she like a grad school dropout or whatever? Like that's what the back of the book says, right? Well, yeah, this kind of is nice because we were gonna. I was gonna say, you know, I just wanted to like touch on her own experience through trying to get this published, bleeding in, and you know, it's it's not not, not something to talk about for too long. It's just that like all of this notion of people being like, whoa, like like idiots on this circle line, this literal perpetual rotation device that's just never goes anywhere, like constantly just being like, that's that's so crazy that you would even know Greek and stuff like that. Just being like editors essentially like, well, why do you need old Norse in the book? I mean, no one knows it. Like that's like, I, I feel like she's having a kind of little cheeky dialogue with, with all these people that don't want it in there. And in fact, I think there's more than there would be normally. <laughs> potentially out of spite well yeah I, would, I was gonna say too that a lot of the book is written in with a really cheeky humor and dewitt of helen dewitt is just it's pretty up there <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah dude <laughs> I, yeah i mean i agree i thought the book i mean we can pivot a little bit if we want to talk about the writing a little bit and the structure. Uh, I, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was really funny in in a lot of places. We've, we've, we've all had a very serious conversation for the last however long, and but yeah, the the book is pretty funny. Can I yeah. read? A, can I read the line where she, about her having sex with Liberace? Please. Yeah, all right. Let me see if. Okay, ready. No sooner were Liberace and I in his bed without our clothes than I re realized how stupid I'd been. At this distance, I can actually not remember every little detail, but if there is one musical form that I hate more than any other, it is the medley. One minute, the musician, or more likely aged band, is playing an over-orchestrated version of The Impossible Dream. All of a sudden, mid-verse, for no reason, there's a stomach-turning swerve into another key, and you're in the middle of Over the Rainbow. Swerve. Climb every mountain. Swerve. Ain't no mountain high enough. Swerve, swerve, swerve. Well then, you have only to imagine Liberace. Hands, mouth, penis, now here, now there. No sooner here than there. No sooner there than here again. Starting something only to stop and start something else instead. 
and you will have a pretty accurate picture of the drunken medley. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, sex. I you know when I think about sex, I do think about music. I think about composition. You know. <laughs> oh, I was thinking about drunkenness. <laughs> yeah. The medley. But there's just like there's a lot of just fucking just one-liner type just fucking straight up jokes in this book too like um there's late, late in the book it's on 447 in my edition um where ludo is describing uh sibyla calling like a, a an organization of the samaritans they're called in the book which is like it's basically like a suicide hotline yeah. or something right um and so it starts off, it says, and they'd say, good, um, uh, a man needs an occupation. My mother called once and the person kept saying, yes, and I hear what you're saying, which would have been reassuring if my mother had been worried about being inaudible. <laughs> and like, that's just fucking a fun, like a funny, like little one-liner. And there's shit like that all throughout the book. It's very funny. And all the dads okay. tend to be funny, except for Red Dan, who is uh, not so funny. Yeah, we should probably talk about the dads a little bit. Um yeah, I, we have it, like in. Right, is it time to get into the sort of gender, gym. sort of uh, you know, um, part of the book? I guess the official have... spot, the official Spinecracker's position is that we always have time for gender. Well, I mean, you know, it's like it's like you know, clearly there's a sort of uh, mother son dynamic, and like you know, a big part, a big theme is like he's literally searching for his dad, you know. And uh, I don't know, like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know what I think about, I guess, the the sort of uh, the gender sort of the, the gender question, I guess, or sort of the paternal question. Um, but yeah. I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, what you mean further, just because like, yeah, it is interesting. Like, it's about a single mom. It's written by a woman. It's like, and and this kid is looking for a male role model and i think it's not irrelevant that it's a that it's a poor single mom too true freaking cadillac queen uh sorry (laughs) 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 but you know and this mom's in like uh, again just completely misguided notion is if this kid watches seven samurai enough it'll be like it'll be be like having a dad You know that that just speaks to her mental health more than anything else. Well, uh, it's it is a, also kind of an interesting subversion of the of the like single mom like kids need a father thing because like by the end of it, except arguably for for Red, uh, he fucking hates everyone he meets that he as is as like a candidate for his father. And then they're they all fail in like various ways they're like physically abusive to the point of like cutting him in one case and and or just like um, that one was trouble like the other dads were disappointing or like you know also ludo's standards are wild but in a kind of good way but like serbji or whatever the the physicist the carl yeah the astronomy guy like that guy was straight up villainous because he was like there was some current under the house that he like ludo was like picking up on that he couldn't identify and i feel like you're supposed to get the sense that he is just beating these people like his wife and his kids by the end when he's like he just strikes him a couple times and then he just immediately like recovers and smiles and he's like oh that's so creepy he's like oh my temper is a little crazy hey uh so you need to you still need a reference for college uh and he just 
smiles. Well, and then and I then was that talking, smile I was, was talking referenced about by the, Red Devlin. Right. I, oh, yeah, shit. But I, I mean, I was talking about the, the painter who like literally cuts his finger open with a knife and like puts blood on a, on a, <laughs> right. a piece of cloth. I mean, so my question is like, you know, wh- what is what is sort of the main what is the mainstream expectation of fathers in our culture? Because on some level, it's like the mom, I think, is expected to be the sort of at least the moral educator of the family. Right. Like like the dad is kind of you know, to some extent absent from like day-to-day life is just the breadwinner. I don't know how much this is changing, you know, in, in recent years or whatever, but at least typically or traditionally, like, you know, the dad is kind of like outside of the domestic sphere and is therefore sort of removed from, I think, the sort of uh, moral education that comes with just growing up in a household, right? And so I would it's like- disagree. I disagree. I mean, I think the dad, like, I guess if I had to boil it down, like the dad, you know, in my mind, like the dad teaches the son how to do practical things like mow the lawn and, you know, fix the fucking, uh, you know, change a tire or whatever. But like the mom is the football. Yeah. The mom is expected (laughs) to like instill like a sense of moral, you know, I don't know, justice and, and in you or whatever. And so it's like, I'm, I'm wondering like, and with Ludo, it's like, clearly he's looking for, some sort of genius intellect to equal his own in a father. And I'm like, is that, you know, is that actually what the father's role is? Like, I don't know. Like, what is the role of a father, I guess, today? I mean, I would just say, and then I know Matt had something to jump in. I mean, even, I think even all those things you said about the practical kind of like, you know, here's how to like survive and make money and whatever and fix your fucking fucking sink or whatever uh like take out the fucking whatever valve i don't know I, clearly i didn't do, have nice. a, i had a bad father just kidding <laughs> um, but you know all of that is also wrapped up in a in a kind of like moral um bundle in the sense of like here's how you be a man here's how you provide for your family which are yeah. in and of themselves kind of like moral imperatives i think that's true yeah that's that's more what i was getting at was just like there's there's emotional intelligence and receptiveness and like understanding that maybe the mom is supposed to kind of indirectly impart, but I feel like trad style, the dad is supposed to be the, you said the trad justice. dad, the trad dad, you said justice. And I'm like, that's dad shit. That's like judicial fucking civic. Here's how you okay, do yeah, the I right thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I just, here's yeah. how you be a man, you know? Right. And here's how you comport yourself in this society. And like, you know, I'm a pillar of the community, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Here's a well, spice. I think that the, yeah, go ahead, Paul. Sorry. Uh, well, I want to keep going with this point for a second. I, I think that when this book was written and when DeWitt was thinking about this book um, does factor into her, her pretty traditional stance of like, this kid does need a father figure in his life. Um I was listening to NPR once because I'm so smart. <laughs> um, and there were, it was a story of this lesbian couple who had uh, adopted a son. And it was, I think it was like 2012 or something like that. I totally, it was past 2000. And they were basically talking about how they would search out father figures, like, you know, just maybe one of their brothers or, 
their dads or something and they they still held that to be somewhat important to the raising of their child yeah um but i think there it, it is kind of like a cloudy area especially now um but I, I do think back then though it was probably ingrained culturally in the way to just kind of come to that conclusion for this character like she would probably search out a father figure because it's 1993 or whatever and things hadn't really changed that much traditionally. The subversion would just be the agency of the kid. Well, now, yeah. Now you don't need a dad to tell you to teach you how to change your tire. You just go to YouTube. You know, YouTube yeah, is that's your dad true. now. <laughs> so. Yeah, why, why catch the dads anymore? You don't need a dad. You just need YouTube. I, you, you don't need, need a dad to tell you how to find the clitoris. You just go to YouTube. You just yeah, got to watch. Yeah. yeah. I love the idea of yeah. running around with a big butterfly net. <laughs> Just trying to get a dad. <laughs> uh, okay, here's here's my spicy take on Ludo uh, in a way that I think is actually even more kind of subversive than what you were saying, Paul, is that I think by the end of the book, b- between between his interactions with Red and what he, his interactions with, I forget the fucking piano player's name. Do you, do you guys anyone remember? He's a Japanese guy. I, I know, yeah, it's a, ja- yeah. It's, a, it's a Japanese name. I can't remember his name. Um, between his interaction with Red and 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 the piano player, Ludo becomes this motherly caretaking figure. Like when he's with Red, he's mm. basically like emotionally caring for him and like trying to get him to not kill himself, basically. So Red Red Devlin is like the last like father figure that Ludo explicitly like seeks out and interacts with. And he's like a a journalist who was captured in like a war uh and held as like a political prisoner and tortured and shit. And he comes back and and he's like a media celebrity, but like in, he's having PTSD and like a, a really like bad go of it. And Ludo like arrives at his house just by chance on the same day that he was planning to kill himself. And their interaction is basically just like Ludo doing emotional sort of labor to try to get him to not commit suicide. Um, and he ultimately fails, right? The, he, the guy does kill himself in the, in the end. But the Ludo, saddest- Ludo, Ludo becomes this motherly figure in this really like, concrete direct way but like he yeah you're that's true and but i think there is a slight wrinkle in it which is like the maybe the saddest image of the book like something that actually like creeped me out and like the only time i actually really got like choked up i think at any point reading it is him just putting his the arm around his the dead dude's arm around his shoulder <laughs> just like sitting on bed with this guy who has recently died and just slowly putting his arm around his shoulder just like and, his and, dad and crying <laughs> and he and he cries and weeping but, yeah I, that was right. very sad i like yeah i mean that that whole exchange and like their their discussion beforehand and all that kind of stuff yeah it it, it felt i don't know if i'm really like i don't know if i really like get all of, of what was maybe trying to be communicated but it it felt like a synthesis or of something that DeWitt herself was trying to get at about what's important. Right? I don't know. Did anyone else? Yeah. You'd, oh, sorry. Someone yeah, the... didn't finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. It's okay. The most, the most emotionally affecting part was right at the end, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, it's cool though. Cause like, you know, I, I spent, you know, the majority of the last hour, you know, talking about the book that I didn't read. So, well, I like mean, I read, I read, I read, I read oh. almost, I <laughs> yeah. read almost, yeah, it's like I'm back in grad school.
Cool. Yeah, like a true academic. Yeah. No, I, fast, I did. Fast. I did read almost all of it. I mean, you know, eighty percent of it, or not eighty. Yeah. Dude, it's no tea, no shade. Matt's Matt's just a shady bitch. Yeah. No, I'm just. I, listen, it's just it's just content. I have <laughs> look. I've I interlibrary loaned this, even though I did get the the digital version. So I still have. I don't have to return it until February one. Actually, I can renew it. So. Interlibrary loan is fucking king shit. That's fucking. I like that a lot. Big ups. Yeah, dude. There is a, there there. I don't know, Gabe and Dan. I guess like there was a little bit of a suggestion that academia destroys your ability to engage with yes, I with writing. <laughs> okay, I wanted to get this because you read the author blurb at the end. Yes. And she she makes such a big deal of explaining everywhere she went to college. Like, let me just read it word for word. Helen DeWitt was born in 1957 in Tacoma Park, Maryland. She grew up uh, mainly in South America. She started a degree. She started a degree at Smith College in 1975 and then went on to Oxford to study classics and philosophy. She spent a year at Somerville College, Oxford, before deciding to give up academic life in 1989. She now lives in Chesterfield, Derbyshire. But it's like, why would your entire blurb be about like where you went to college and then started to go to college and then dropped out? Like, there, there seems to be this kind of like, and and Gabe, I'm sure is familiar with this, but there is totally a sort of genre now, a genre of like academic now, where they're like, I am the, you know, noble academic who turned away from academia. And I, you know, mm. proudly walked away and turned around on it. And I'm charting my own path. And like, I mean, yes, there's tons of problems with academia, don't get me wrong. And I, I I will be the first to fucking like critique, you know, everything about academia. But like, there's also this weird, like there's this weird sort of like space now where people are like, you know, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to brand themselves as like, I, you know, I quit academia as if that's like a badge of honor. Yep. And it just, it feels weird. And there was a little bit of that throughout this whole book where it's like, you know, like I'm clearly she's an extremely educated person. She's like referencing, you know, great works of literature throughout the whole thing. And then she makes a big like effort of like explaining that she had all these formal educational like credentials that she at least attempted. Uh, but, you know, maybe walked away from. But, I, you know, I just I don't know. It's like I don't know if that's just her you know, sort of branding herself or what? I don't know what it's, you guys think. Uh, it's, it's, it's the fucking academic dark web, dude. It's fucking, yeah, it's, it like, yeah. it's like, it's like, it's, you're totally right. It's become this culture of, and again, I'm just going to reiterate what Daniel said, like academia is in many ways fucking hot garbage and like is it's bad be, beset by like hideous problems that run the gamut from like racism to sexual assault to, fucking like class like total class ignorance and all that but there is absolutely a group of people a certain set of person a type of person who leaves academia because of fucking like dave Ru dave rubin style like they just weren't ready for my fucking crazy big ideas uh when really they were just saying like dumb shit that made no sense and i'm not saying dewitt is one of those people but like it definitely 
engenders a certain like type of insecurity and i felt like that came through in some ways well uh yeah i mean to be for to be a little bit more harsh from the the bro literature person on the podcast um i did watch a few <laughs> interviews with her and she came off as like having a, a high level of like grandiloquence and sort of just like a toffee nose Ponzi wine bar type woman. <laughs> hell yeah. Uh, hell yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, I, 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 re- I listened to those interviews like probably 50 pages in and I couldn't get her fucking voice out of my head the whole time. And it kind of tainted the experience for me. I wish I watched it afterwards, but there's a, there is this kind of snobbery that is throughout the whole book in, in its writing style and in its uh, references. And uh, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing inherently, um, but it did, it did, it could overwhelm you as a reader and in a lot of ways it did for me. I'll just say that Sibylla to my mind, and I also watched the kind of just the, the really few existing interviews of her. Sibylla just seems to be, pretty close to Helen DeWitt herself uh you know like hmm. like I I would say her saving grace is that she does seem twitchy and kind of nervous and unhappy uh and hyper 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 self-conscious I I, I don't know you, Dan you were talking about David Foster Wallace before that's another sort of quality of his almost you know oh yeah watching interviews with him it's like yeah, you're so distracted by his own self consciousness or awareness of himself. You know, it's like he can't, he's so aware of like how he sounds that like he can't, it's like impossible for him to like speak naturally almost. But he is also an incredible, like he, but he is also like, it's, it's just battled with this sense that he is, is smarter than most yeah, people. And like, I think he is like, uh, you know, I would I would categorize him as a genius or whatever, you know. Like I think he was, and he was like a very smart guy in that sense. Like he was like a genius writer or whatever you want to say. I guess well, I, I think it's interesting that Sibylla, her kind of personal battle seems to be with boredom as this boogeyman concept. Yeah. That is that is the topic, the straightforward topic of, you know, uh. David Foster Wallace's last book that killed him. Yeah, I mean, I have I actually haven't read uh, the last book, and but I did I have read Infinite Jest, and I mean boredom is like a a, a big thing in that too. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, like you know, there's just sort of the tedium of you know 21st century American life. It's also just become such a such a um, kind of like cringy cliche i guess like i just like i just it's it's just one of those things that you see on like a fucking like mid-level like coffee roaster baristas like instagram profile like, if you're bored you're boring man like sh- like shut the fuck up also you know what i mean like yeah. if you're not bored then you're delusional is my counterpoint to that i uh i that's that's no joke. I actually, when I was living in New York City, I was I was having a rough time. It was <laughs> it was just a dark couple weeks, and uh, 
I saw an ad for like it was like for fucking shoes or something, and it was like if you're it, only the boring are bored, and I and I and I cried in, like a bitch in the middle of a train, and it was just like a like basic ass ad that like also sucked and it just made it even worse. So I don't know. That was just a personal anecdote of that shit. No, that's D, deep, that's, dude. Like, that's real shit. That's that's some like uh madman level marketing though for New York <laughs> I mean, right there. Some fucking evil genius in Madison yeah. Avenue was like <laughs> just like feeling my anguish. Bored millennials, they suck just by these shoes. Dick hard just <laughs> getting my anguish through his uh the ley lines that they lay because uh New York City is a evil occult. <laughs> Babylon. Uh, so here's like a we, uh, you know, a weird question that I've been asking myself recently. Every time I consume some sort of text, uh, would this book have been better as a movie? No. This one I think is difficult to. I mean, obviously Tom Cruise would play Ludo. <laughs> um. <laughs> So that's an easy cast casting move. Uh, I think this one would be, I mean, I would love to see someone take a shot at it. It seems like an incredibly, because so much of the book is um, just internal monologue, right? It's just literally, like you said earlier, Daniel, just fucking like transcribing the kind of like insane autistic thought processes that no one else has access to that we all have to some degree or another. Um, finding a finding a compelling way to do that in a movie, I think I would love, I would like to see someone try, I'll put it that way. That's actually true. I would like to see an attempt. I didn't mean to just shut it down. I want to see an attempt. Yeah, I mean, like, cause I was thinking about it and like my, my sort of initial thoughts are like, you know, cause I, you know, I don't want to get too into the fucking theory or whatever, but like, please, you know, you could, I mean, I think we can all safely categorize this book as like a, uh, in the sort of postmodern literary tradition, right? It is like a post, it is a very postmodern book in the sense of like how it's like constructed and like, you know, like the, how it's like put together and like, in general, I think a lot of postmodern like novels or postmodern literary projects don't really translate well to movies. Always, not not always, but uh, you know, often. But I, I just wonder about this book because at times, like like literally, I found myself looking at like the page, and you know, you'd have like there would be like just a small amount of text on the page, you know, in like Japanese or some shit. And it's like, it's almost like the book was trying to be a visual medium, you know, at times, like it was almost trying, like it was trying, and there was like multiple blank pages, at least in my copy where like you would have to like, and like, I just wonder how much, and then there was like stuff where, you know, they would repeat these like tropes where, they would say like, I don't know, like the, the diary entries from Ludo would be like worded the same way. Right. And they would be this very, very like sort of simplistic sort of like diary observations. And I'm just wondering if like, 
it's like after I read like four or five of them, I'm like, okay, I get it. Like this guy is like, it's like, oh, it's your sixth day of second grade. Like who gives a shit? You know? <laughs> so I'm just, I'm wondering if like, I'm wondering if like, oh, like, you know, you could achieve, you could achieve the same sort of thing just in a movie in a more, more efficient way. Like, it's like this book is 550 pages long or whatever and it's like i wonder if i communicated maybe in a movie i don't know i ultimately i don't i don't really know what i think like i just i i i keep wondering like every time i read or watch something uh i'm like I'm, you know i try to like hypothetically transpose it into a different medium i uh, I, was yeah, say, I, I think for me i i, I can all oh. <laughs> wait what is, is game delayed or is that a troll I'm good. I think we're back. I think we're back. We're good. We're good. We're good. Yeah. I I think that uh, for me, most mediums that are storytelling mediums can be at least attempted to be translated. Uh, I I think that uh, someone could could probably do a good movie of this story. I think the only thing I was thinking of is like, you know, in a beautiful mind when they show like the mathematics and like, like the reflections and stuff. Yeah. Like if someone if someone did that with this movie, I'd be like, that was not the way to do it. Or just or just like Jeez. that fucking meme of the meme of the woman being like <laughs> the mathematical <laughs> equations. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. It seems like, you know, I'm not a fan of, of either of these guys per se, but it seems like a pretty obvious kind of like, let's do like a Charlie Kaufman, Spike Jones collab you know, Synecdoche, New York type fucking thing with I, this. I just have a little tidbit, um, which is that I knew, that, I knew that Helen DeWitt was interested in uh, this dude, Edward R. Tufty, who is a data, visualiz- uh, data visualization guy. Uh, and I literally, I have one of these books just by chance. <laughs> Check it out. No one, this is not for the audience, but... uh. Huh. Matt's holding up a book entitled Visual Explanation. Is that what it's titled? Yeah, visual explanations by Edward R. Tufte. He has a bunch of these, but like, I, I, you know, she, she, she seemed to like be super interested in this whole like notion of data visualization. I don't, don't really know how much it actually like kind of impacted her her writing, but she herself seemed jazzed about it. Well, I think we, I think we've so far just, and it, you know, we don't have to talk about it for too long, but like we've undersold a little bit the the and daniel was hinting at it in his you know in what he was just saying in the sort of the 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 visuality of the book the structure of the way the text is laid out on the Mm -hmm. page it's there's a lot of use of capitalization where you know you're in in sybil's head and like ludo is interjecting in these like very obnoxious like questions that are all in all caps that visually interrupt your reading repetition Um, a lot there's a there's like a lot of repetition, a lot of like mathematical forms on the page, um, pages with only one or two words, like that sort of thing. It's a very visual book for sure. Well, it, even like the general dialogue is kind of off to me too. Like instead of just quotations, comma, he said, it'll it'll be like really blunt. Like he said, blah, blah, blah. He said, well, blah, and blah, they'll start with, said blah, blah, blah. They'll start with, the, they'll capitalize that first H and he said. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I like kind that. of found a little jarring. I didn't. I was jarring. <laughs> 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 I think that's my, a, my cat's like, here, by the way. 
What's up, cat? What's your cat? What's your cat's Penelope. name? Penelope. Oh, that's a sweet Penelope, name. Penelope the cat. Penelope. Penelope. Yeah. Oh, yes, we, we say it phonetic in this house. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, night, I... Uh, oh, go ahead. Well, because I actually also thought about this because I saw recently that uh, did you guys hear or see that um, what is his name? Uh, Bombach, uh, Noah Bombach. Noah is, Bombach. Uh, yeah. He's gonna do a film adaptation of White Noise, starring <laughs> I think I, uh, I, starring Adam Driver. I think I referenced this on our last episode that's not released yet, or maybe the one before. Oh, is, is it the one that came out to or yesterday or today? Maybe. It, it could have been the one that came out a couple then days I, ago. I haven't listened to it. But, or yeah, I, oh, yeah, we maybe we, we talked about it on Twitter. But so White Noise is, you know, the uh, in many ways, a sort of archetypal postmodern novel. And I have some serious questions about how well this is going to translate to film. You know, I don't know if you guys have any serious, like, intense thoughts about that book. But I think, I don't know if Bombbox the one to do it. But I actually think that in, in in comparison to like this book, I think White Noise is a much there's much it, it could be done more easily. It is more narrative. That's true. I, I think that if anyone is to do White Noise, it should be um, P.T. Anderson. But that would be cool. I think he kind of biffed uh, Inherent Vice, though. I actually never saw Inherent Vice. So I heard that was really good. It's fun, but it's just like, and he gets a kind of like vibe of a of a sort of pension novel, but like, you know, I've read the book too. It just like it's a, I don't know. I, I feel like he just kind of he, doesn't, he like, doesn't pull it off. He gets too excited about his little filmy bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the thing with P.T. Anderson is like, I'm gonna shoot uh, a P. movie. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. The thing about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is like, I find myself like. I think like almost like every other movie he makes is like really good, but like, you know, that, that means every, that, that like half the movies are like weird and don't really hit. Like mm -hmm. there's a cup, there's a couple of his movies that I'm just like, I don't fucking get this, but then like, you know, other, half of them, I'm like, these are fucking amazing. So, and nothing's bad in my opinion. Nothing's yeah. Bad. He's just like, he's just, he's, I'm ambivalent about him like overall in some ways, but. Well, well, Cronenberg is the only other person to have done, I, I believe a DeLillo adaptation with Cosmopolis. Oh, yeah. That's true. I haven't seen that actually, but I do love some Cronenberg. So. I don't know. He did, yeah. he, did the, he did the master, right? And um yeah pta did the master he did you know there will be blood he did um the one that boogie, i like boogie nights uh, boogie nights the one i fucking loved uh, uh what's the one about the dressmaker or whatever phantom thread i loved phantom thread like just for the oh, end the, a... the ending alone i thought was yeah literally was, a toxic relationship yeah <laughs> don't spoil it i haven't seen that one yet no spoilers uh just watch it it's really good I think, but yeah, I, I don't know how Bombok's gonna do do it. I, it it's kind of in his wheelhouse in terms of like domestic discontent, but like, yeah, I, I have no fucking idea. Like he's he's a little he he's retained that early two thousands indie aesthetic, and he's a little whimsical occasionally. I I don't know. Yeah, 
Yeah, I don't know. Well, anyway, I didn't want to get too I far think, off the topic. Well, I, okay, I think here's my take on the white noise thing. I think um, Keenan Wayans should direct it and change the title to the director of White Chicks, and he should change the director the title to <laughs> to he should change the title to White Boys, and then just see what yes. happens. <laughs> that dude, that's that's genius. It would have more value. White boys. Culturally. <laughs> <laughs> white boys. Yeah. The thing about this book, though, The Last Samurai, is that it already was made into a movie called Last Samurai. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Starring Tom Cruise. Dude, Paul. <laughs> Paul. Paul has had the best takes all night long. <laughs> starting, starting with calling uh, the protagonist syllabus. I don't know how you top that, honestly. Yeah, that's actually it. <laughs> That's that's it. Put a fucking bow on it. <laughs> should we uh all my literary analysis aside, yeah. Yeah. Should we just segue into the the the, the you know, the final segment? Yeah, yeah. Um does anyone have any like final thoughts? I mean, on and before we go into our our sort of official wrap up. I mean, I'll just say I think Ludo's final sort of act, the way the book ends to me was very touching that he you know, the only other thing that Sib uh, ever really shows any, Sibylla ever shows any interest in throughout the course of the, the the novel is this sort of obscure, like, piano prodigy who gives these weird, like, 18-hour, 20-hour long live performances, and she goes and sees one, and there's a, there's a really long sort of, there's this weird digression that the book makes into, like, an 80-page description of his background and his story. Yeah. Um, and uh, at the end of the book, Ludo seeks him out and basically convinces him to like record an album like exclusively for his mother. And I just found that to be like a really like interesting way to end the book as a, as, as a sort of like Ludo sort of grasping at an expression of love that he's never like seen realized um, in any other way. And that that's sort of the closest he's going to be able to get. I don't, that was my interpretation. I don't know how it hit the rest of you. I, I totally agree. I, I, the, I, I love like, yeah, I don't know. I really like the ending. Uh, and I thought like, I really like when a book kind of like rewards you sticking like literally to like the last few pages. Um, the only other thing I wanted to like flag was just there's with all the, you know, theoretical dads that Ludo goes out to like sort of vet and capture. Uh, that's the new podcast name. Theoretical dads. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Uh, a big chunk of the second half is Ludo's perspective, but also just like these, I thought a lot of the time really fun, almost like mini novella-y kind of backstories about the fathers and why they're kind of interesting to Ludo. And it's kind of suggested they're filtered through uh, his, you know, Sibylla's, his mom's like narrativizing of them. And uh, some of those were just kind of cool short stories of their own. I'll just uh, say, I will say one of my like sort of beefs with not beefs is just, I just, I wasn't a hundred percent sold on the stylistic approach was, you know, some of the dads in the back half, some of the, the people Ludo pursues as, as father figures, some of them get 80 pages and some of them get seven. Yeah. And I just wasn't, I wasn't a hundred percent sure that was the right approach, uh, for me, I was just kind of like either make the book 800 pages and give everybody that amount or or cut it a little bit. I don't know. It, I wasn't 100%. It didn't totally make but sense I, to me. I think the service was just supposed to be like uh, um, a mythological almost account 
and then the actual meetings and then that i think that was effective in terms of being jarring like you hear about this fucking dude who's like trekking across the desert and saving refugees and being awesome and then he finally meets him in his like posh kensington gardens fucking uh flat and the dude's just like you yeah, should go that, to that school part made, <laughs> that part yeah <laughs> yeah that part made sense but 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 not everybody got that's that. true like the painter guy didn't yeah. really he didn't really get that treatment he did a little bit but it wasn't as extensive anyway that was just a little finer quibble of me so daniel i don't know if you know this about the show but uh, at the end of at the end of our towards the end of the discussion we like to indulge our uh child lizard brains and um talk about harry potter so we call it we literally just read another book and this is the segment where we put all of the characters from the book that we just read into harry potter houses hell yeah and yeah okay uh, yeah i can do this all right bet so who, so let's you're gonna. start with let's start with the <laughs> guest <laughs> you have to you don't have yeah. a choice yeah it's not a democracy who are we starting with paul the guest oh you mean the character <laughs> probably <laughs> uh probably sill right all right yeah let's stop with syllabus, syllabus Mama for... sill. <laughs> so you want me to put you want me to put sill into a hogwarts house Yep, yes. you can, and we'll go. You can go last. We can think. We'll th- give you a minute to think on it. There's, there's all often debate involved. All right, yeah, so. I'll go last if you, if you're all offering. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's fine. I think it's a pretty easy Paul. Ravenclaw. Yeah, I was gonna say Ravenclaw. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, there. What are what mitigating factors are there to it in your minds, even? Well, my question is, what Harry Potter house is most class conscious? Because <laughs> my. <laughs> My fucking my take on sil- on syllabus as a character is um I I think she's deeply shaped by class and like economic condition. I mean, where's she from originally? Like Oklahoma or some shit? I forget. Yeah. It's it's from some some you know Midwest US state, I think. She's I'm afraid of podunk towns, yeah. Yeah, and I think she has she's very her her entire worldview is very shaped by class consciousness and sort of you know, wanting to disavow her her uh, up upbringing in some ways, and so I don't know. I don't know where that fits into the Harry Potter fucking houses. I, yeah, I, can't I, where, I, I, I like, mean, Ravenclaw. I think is obvious. I think Ravenclaw is an obvious grab. I'm just trying to. Look, I'm just I trying will, to make I sure will, we figured out. I mean, I will, I, add, I, would, I will add a little bit of dissonance to the to the pot. Um, because I, I agree, I think Ravenclaw, I think she's mostly Ravenclaw, but I would argue that there's a little bit of Hufflepuff in her mm-hmm. because she has this court this sort of like whimsical quality where, like, for instance, like the whole like, oh, I'm just gonna play seven samurai like on repeat. And, you know, like, oh, we're gonna like go through the Odyssey and all these like goofy. I don't there's like this weird goofiness to her and like her curriculum for Ludo or whatever that is yes. On the one hand, it's like quintessentially Ravenclaw, but like also like, I don't know, there's like something that's, you know, Ravenclaw, I would say is like, is a very rash is the rational house, but like Hufflepuff is like, there's like an sort of whimsical quality to it. So Mm, yeah. When she is happy, she is sillier. 
Yeah, yeah. Right. But even when she's happy, she's happy about not being bored because she's pursuing factual expansion, essentially. Yeah, but it's almost like she's like she's like trying to be into facts as like a, like an identity and not actually because she's into facts in like mm-hmm. a weird way. Like it's like a superficial fact like th- like obsession with facts. Well, I just think she's a depressed Ravenclaw. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> I feel like that's, the, maybe that's the best way to put it. Yeah, it's like clinical yeah. depression. I think is what's what coloring that whole shit. So yeah, so sad Ravenclaw maybe. Sad Ravenclaw. <laughs> she, I like that. Yeah. She never she never found the right wizard. <laughs> <laughs> she never found the right wand, dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's been searching for the right wand for years. All right, so then. Well, Gabe, we, Gabe, do, to your point though, real quick. Uh, her obsession with with class consciousness would that point her into the Slytherin world because I feel like Slytherin is the most class class conscious. Well, okay, that's sort of what I was thinking because like if you think about someone like the Malfoys, Draco and and his dad, I forget his dad's name, Lucius. Um, they're all luscious. They're, they're both luscious. His those locks, man, that fucking hair, it's out of control. Rock. They're obsessed cool. with they're obsessed with status and looking the best and like having the fucking like best and bloodlines. Yeah, and bloodlines yeah, and shit. And so Ludo is obsessed with bloodline and obsessed <laughs> with who his father is. Yeah. And Sib is kind of obsessed with status and like appearing classy and shit. So I guess that's kind of where I was trying to like feeling a little conflicted. But I think I, depressed I, Ravenclaw is, is probably right. Because I think Sib doesn't yeah. actually give a shit about looking classy. Yeah, because she just goes bananas on the fucking subway She's, yelling at people about philosophy fucking thought yeah, experiments. The tism just actually absolutely steamrolls <laughs> any ability to like... <laughs> I've never heard Kill. it referred to as the tism. That's, that's hilarious. Yeah, she's a little bit frumpy, right? I, yeah. De- so depressed she's Ravenclaw. I'm, I'm on board. Yes. Um, yeah, I like that. Ludo. Ludo. Hufflepuff. I kind of yeah. think, ooh. I think he's a Ravenclaw too. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of in the camp of like he's like he's a more classical Ravenclaw than a Syllabus. Yeah, like he's just a, he's just a straight up fucking nerd. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, dude, he's yeah. a samurai. <laughs> he's a samurai of the mind, dude. Yes, exactly. A fucking mind saves- samurai. Sammer mind. He saves the he's <laughs> mind. stole my thunder. I was gonna say he saves the samurai culture from Japanese Empire, the Japanese Empire. Is <laughs> <laughs> in the wrong hands. I mean, I don't know. Okay, wait. So Matt, you you've said pretty confidently Hufflepuff. Like talk talk through your yeah, reasoning why? a little bit. Well, you know, my initial thought was Gryffindor. Uh, because Boy, he's, what are you talking about? He's got the balls to just walk into people's houses and be like, I'm your son, and he's lying. Okay, that is pretty yeah. Chad. That is pretty Chad. <clears throat> That's Chad. But I think what the last couple pages of the book even demonstrate is a, a, a kind of softy loyalty at the end of the day to uh his mother true 
and uh, I don't know that that to me feel because Hufflepuffs are loyal, as we all know, because we've read Harry, not Wikipedia, uh, whatever the Harry Potter one is. Uh, that's Pog the Quidditch. <laughs> But just reading Wikipedia to learn about <laughs> Harry Potter. Which, which house do you? Which house are you sorted into when you take the quiz? Ooh, May, we could reveal this. Does this matter? Does this affect our? Yeah, our anatomy. Okay, well, this ability. is this would be new information revealed on the pod. Yeah, because I've I've actually never done the little sorting hat uh, quiz. Should this be uh, a Patreon? Oh, yeah. shit, Don't I've never done it. Only information. I've I I'm a I'm Slytherin, dude. I've been sorted. I'm Slytherin. Slytherin. I'm wow. fucking Slytherin. You and really a lot are? of people like I have have told Paul, that to you people. Know I'm Slytherin. And a lot of people yeah, are like, "Oh, that's the that's the neoliberal house." And I'm like, "No, it's not, dude. Fucking Gryffindor is neoliberalism. Ne- Gryffindor is fucking Gryffindor is neoliberalism. Virtue signaling. Fucking yeah. Kamala Harris. I'm speaking. Hey, bullshit. back. Hey, back the fuck off. I've been sorted in Gryffindor like five times. <laughs> I have to log in to J.K. Rowling's fucking website to go to Pottermore.com, so I'm not going to do it. Matt, yeah, it takes it takes like 20 minutes. Do you got it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah like Myers, a, it's like a Myers-Briggs. Like you and J.K. Rowling have to have a personal conversation for like 20 minutes. Yeah. I have to sit in her receiving room and drink tea with her, and she'd be like, so they just get the same bathroom as everyone else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you have to like you have to pull down your pants in front of her and let me res- let me gaze upon your penis. Okay, good. Mm, what so accent big. am I doing? Shut up, Paul. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> it's regular. Uh, Sorry, Pete. No, but so yeah. wait, so 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 you stand by Ludo is you stand by Ludo as Hufflepuff. Yeah, I think he's he's revealed Hufflepuff at the at the very end there. I'm on the uh, I'm on the enough. fucking I'm on the fucking fence, honestly. Well, but that's, okay, that's not an, that's not enough. For okay, me. but Paul, let me just say this. Let me say this to 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 you and Daniel. Matt's point is that I think part of Matt's point is that like Ludo is still even at the end of the book only like eleven or twelve. He's still yeah, he's, re- he's still he's still revealing his true. house qualities. Like we can't judge what house he would be in by like his image and his his deranged mother's mind when he's like three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the 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 qualities he's starting to exhibit by the end of the book are definitely more Hufflepuff. He's he's being in part he's he's being uh, forced in a way to endure the designs of a griff of a of a ravenclaw which makes him seem ravenclaw but what he is developing into seems to me to be a hufflepuff because the person he latches onto okay let me ask you this when when do you get sorted in when you're what age 12 you go to hogwarts it's like 12 or 13 isn't it yeah yeah so at this point they put they put the hat on him do you think the the hat wouldn't be like Ravenclaw. I think based think on really I say think, Hufflepuff. I think based on the emergent qualities in the last <laughs> section of the book, I think it would say Hufflepuff. Yeah. All right, but you can also choose, and I think maybe if that was the case, I think he would choose uh, Gryffindor or uh, fucking Ravenclaw. But how many of us are? <laughs> how, many of us are shit. how many of us are like the the person we were at twelve? Okay. Well, now, uh, no, I'm not. I, I'm sh- sure as shit not like I mean this is actually this is 
you know, I know you guys do like the rating thing at the end of the book or at the end of the episode, but like, so anyway, we'll come back to this, but that <laughs> this is like, this is something I want to get back to, but I hear what you're saying. Like there is a sort of, it's hard for me to judge him as a, as a character because he is 11 and I get that his intellect is beyond his 11 year old body, but like, even like, even having a genius level intellect at 11, I like, I don't care. Like, cause I think that like on some level, your intellect is affected by just the number of years you're alive. Like sure. you can be as like, advanced as possible when you're fucking 10 you could be teaching at harvard or whatever but like there is like something there is such a thing as like life experience that that is not no matter how smart you are you can never fucking like you know like that's just like something you get at over time and so and i think i guess i, I, just I, have, I, I cannot evaluate him as a character he's like I, he's a child he's a child yeah i hear you yeah. but i guess i just feel like the the very end of the book is that we're starting to see some of that experience blossoming into fruition like just starting to see it it's not developed it's not enough to go on but like that's it's pointing to something to come down the road I guess, based maybe. on what he is volition like based on what he is choosing to value in all these father figures i just like, I, I just think about it. 11 is so young or 12 or whatever he is like i'm just like man i i, I wasn't even i don't even know what i thought like at 28 you know like true i mean i do know but like i don't know i i i know what i thought and i wish i didn't think it in a lot of cases didn't right and i don't wait. anymore okay wait you guys know uh you guys know when hermione was placed on the whatever <laughs> didn't no. the hat say like you should be ravenclaw <laughs> yeah and then she chose gryffindor yes i think that's what happened i'm just saying i think that that's what might happen i thought i thought it was that harry they Harry was placed in Slytherin, but then he chose Gryffindor. I thought that, oh, that, yeah, that definitely. Right. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Okay. True that. But Hermione, I think, was straight up Gryffindor. But like, yeah, looking back, she should have just been Ravenclaw. Like, what well, the fuck? so that's she, one of the weird. She's like that's the uber one of nerd. the fucking weird things about the show is that Hermione, like, or like, whoa, it's oh not my a god. <laughs> it's it's literally everything but a show. It's a book and movies, but it's not a <laughs> yeah. show. Uh, but yeah the sorting hat has a drinking problem too it turned out that's why that's why i would be i I would be the sorting hat if i was in the (laughs) in the books okay wait we gotta we gotta put our what's our final answers here i mean is there any i mean i'm saying hufflepuff okay i'm saying ravenclaw all right yeah i'm saying ravenclaw i'm saying i'm saying hufflepuff too split house interesting I'm with the me and me and uh, Paul. We're the bro. We're the bro lit guys. <laughs> hashtag, hashtag bro lit. We know what hashtag we're doing. bros, dude. Hashtag <laughs> hashtag bro lit. Strong mind, yeah. strong body. <laughs> <laughs> so, do we want to quickly do anybody else? I mean, do we want to run through any of the dads quickly, or or any other characters? I'm already on record saying the musical genius is the best genius. That's but true. I guess that's that doesn't really match up with sorting into the houses, but I think we should score it up. Score, score it up. It All up. right, let's do it. Yeah. Let's call it. Uh, who wants to go first? So the tradition is that the the book picker goes last. So that's Matt. Uh, Paul, you want to go first? 
Sure. <laughs> I did, it didn't really come Wait, out. Hold on. Much. Let me just, maybe we yeah. should, maybe we should just give Daniel a quick, like, yeah, give like, me an explainer. Is it out of five? It's out of five. Yeah, and, it's out of you know, five. you can, you can use any, any decimal place between the numbers that you so choose. Um, basically, the scale runs roughly like zero is like, my life is worse because I read this. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. One, you know, one is like, I, you know, this is really bad. Um, two is like, you know, whatever. I probably could have found something better to do with my time, but this is whatever. Three is, uh, yeah, it was all right. Pretty good. Uh, decent for what it is. Four is like excellent. Um, glad I read it made me happy made me think about things and five is like fucking like life-changing I'm gonna read it again like this is a definitive work of fiction in my life yeah but two 2.5 is kind of like middle of the road like yeah 2.5 is like yeah still fine yeah it's like av- kind of average but yeah well okay um I mean overall the I, I really enjoyed the writing style like it was really uh like experimental which i really like um i really couldn't get over just the pompousness that i was reading almost the whole time i kind of felt like uh have you ever seen those zero g videos of the people like in a in like the nasa thing and they're like like the the g's are hitting them (laughs) i kind of felt like i kind of (laughs) I kind of felt like this while reading it. Like I would read for 20 minutes and I'd be like, ah, and then I'd have to put it down. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, uh, and I think I, I do have this uh, bro tendency when I'm, when I'm reading fiction to just want to have some connection with the characters I'm reading about. And that doesn't mean every story I read, I have to like the characters, but I, I, I was, I just had no connection with syllabus or L in like any way. Uh, so it was hard for me to get invested in what was happening with them. I think what I liked most about it was the experimental structure, experimental language. Um, and I do, I do, I do think it was, it was pretty funny and the dialogue could be witty. Um, but overall I, I wouldn't recommend this book to anyone who wasn't like exquisitely into books and just, I felt like it was a book made for people that love books and have, have read like a thousand of them. Yeah. Uh, which I, which I have not. Um, so you've for def- me, it's like, you've a t- definitely read a fucking a thousand books, dude. No, I haven't. I've read like 200, maybe. I don't, this I, book club is like, this book club has upped my <laughs> numbers, but before this, I was like two books a year. Um, so I'm going to have to say like 2.6 for me. Six. Six. Yeah. All right. Well, so I'll go uh, next and then we'll do Daniel and Matt. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I definitely, I don't disagree with Paul that the characters were uh in like experientially unrelatable i mean i i related to sib to some degree in terms of like knowing um washed out academics and people who sort of have that kind of um you know like thinking about education and academia and all that so that was relatable to me at some level certainly ludo is 
just kind of like phenomenologically alien to probably 99% of people on earth, right? Uh, so it, I thought it was interestingly done from an anthropological sort of point of view in that respect. Uh, I liked a lot, again, I agree with Paul. I think the sort of style was really good for me. It, 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 it was really interesting. Again, the visuality of it. Uh, I think for me, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a 4.1. I really did like it. And I think that, um, I, <laughs> I know I was, tem I was tempted to downgrade it a little bit because of DeWitt's afterward, because it seemed like she was like affirmatively arguing for Ludo's education as a good thing. But I think this discussion sort of tempered that reaction for me in some ways. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it, it's a, uh, I'll, I'll say it's a, a 4.06 for me. I, yeah. So I think that I'm, I'm closer to Paul on this and that it was harder to, it was hard to sort of relate to the characters and in like a, I guess in the way that I, I like in fiction just personally um, that said, I do sort of, I like, uh, or I respect or acknowledge like what it was trying to do within the form of like the novel, I guess is the best way to put it. Like I, I, I sort of really appreciated it as a novel, but I almost just didn't appreciate it as a piece of art more generally, if that makes sense. Like I liked, I liked the. And, and I don't even know if that really makes sense in my head, but like I liked it pushing sort of novelistic boundaries, but I'm not sure it cohered as a whole mm. piece of art for me. And, mm. uh, and that, I think that just really had to do with the characters. Like, and just, you know, just to go back to what I said earlier, like, I think that if honestly, if the time frame had shifted up a little bit to where it wasn't just like a mother and a son who and it stopped at like age 12 or whatever if it was like if it was like shifted a little bit to where like the son was more of an adult i think i would have liked it better um honestly but i just had a i had a hard time and this might just have to be with this might be my my issue with like this sort of genius identity more generally but like you know as as advanced as a as a kid genius can be i just i have a hard time connecting with like kid characters because i just don't i i don't think life is about like you know i think life is much more than just like knowing or you know reading all the right books or knowing all the being able to you know do all the right math problems or whatever like i think that there's this experiential component to it that i think is requisite for you know wisdom i guess that's how i would de describe this like the difference between wisdom and genius and like obviously this character was very smart and he was a genius i, I there there was a lack of wisdom i guess so uh, but i just didn't see it wrestle with that uh, distinction very much so anyway long story short um i give it a three because i like again i liked what it did sort of novelistically i didn't it didn't totally work for me as a piece of art as a whole. So three out of five. That 3.00. Nice. Well said. Well said. 
me now. Marl. You. Me. <laughs> I chose it. <laughs> me. Uh. I don't know. I. I. I hear. Uh, I. I. You know. I, I'm gonna just steal bits of all of your kind of assessments here. I was probably on again the more positive end of things. Uh. I think to Daniel's sort of like conclusion that again this is a long book and like so it, it tests your patience in a way um but like i think that very notion of just kind of collecting facts and data uh not meaning wisdom is exactly one of the things that seem to be being dealt with and was uh made clear essentially with the whole red devlin and then the 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 sequence with like the pianist like this kid raised valuing certain things that like you know his brain is hypertrophied in like a, a certain way by this other person who he didn't choose just like sibla the mother is hyper aware of not, kids not having chosen their parents it's true of ludo and i think i don't know i i do it it seemed to me was definitely you know as far as being an elitist or whatever and the david foster wallace kind of comparison she was a person aware of her own self-consciousness i think she was aware of like all this kind of shit and uh yeah so the book felt a lot about education and human possibility like potential uh and how that's still no matter what your um what angle you're taking on it, what approach you are trying to use to ameliorate or mitigate your context and your history. It doesn't matter. I don't know. I, I, I thought it was effective and I, and I also liked all the experimental elements cause I'm just kind of a sucker for that. This didn't read like something I'd read recent at like recently, it was very unique to me. So 3.88. So I've been officially affirmed as the most generous score giver in general I'm, I'm 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 the soft boy i'm the soft boy score giver on the podcast i'm you don't i don't want to hurt her feelings female authors baby do you do you also grade uh do you grade easily to your for your students i i interesting i don't believe in grades so that's probably why no uh, greater Wow. I do. I mean, for the I, Waldorf school, I, I do. I do give grades because I have to. Uh, it, we all have to, man. Yeah. So, but I don't. I don't like. I don't enjoy giving them, and I don't believe in them. And I try to. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're. It's it's a very constraining. I, if I didn't have to give grades, I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. So. Kind of thing. But I'm. Um, yeah. I, I I think we should go through and average out everyone's grade for books. Paul's definitely the lowest, and I think I'm probably definitely the yeah. highest. I have a lot of hatred. In my I do, I do want to say that I liked, I did I did like reading the book. Like it was like hey, you yeah. guys said. Uh, someone pointed out how funny just it was. Like there's yeah. a lot of funny throw like throwaway one liners that were, yeah, pretty funny. Like. She's That's obviously we, she's obviously very talented at like just writing good, yes. interesting, funny prose. That's why we say like two point five is just kind of like the middle ground. So just to give a sense of scale, it's like yeah. anything above that, it's like you basically had some sort of positive experience at right. some point with it. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Two point five is the sort of like yeah, I'm not mad that I read this. Oh right. yeah, it was it was 
fun because like yeah i haven't just really sat down and read like a long long form fiction book in a while so this was like it was nice well yeah. we'll we'll have to have you back on at some point man you're welcome yeah man. thanks for having me welcome i to, i uh, I, uh, I love i listen I, i'm a fan i listen to spine crackers podcast you guys are funny <laughs> so sweet yeah thanks for having me on <laughs> yeah shouts out spine cracker nation and shout, uh shout outs to viva la dude nation and yeah. all the all the dude heads out there yeah you guys are welcome back anytime you want paul you didn't come on but uh anytime you want to come on if you want you know do you want to do a formal a formal plug for viva la dude and its release schedule and anything like that yeah if you if if anyone out there is interested in like a, a podcast to you know uh keep you company i think while you're quarantining that's that's how i'd pitch this uh it's just me and uh, me and two of my friends, and we just talk about you know uh, the most like bo- like you know just the bullshit, the everyday bullshit that happens in life. Uh, it's called Viva La Dude. You can uh, subscribe, follow uh, anywhere. Like Viva, search for Viva La Dude on any of the podcast hosts, and we're there. Uh, uh, we're probably most active on Twitter, so at Viva La Dude. But uh, but yeah, you guys are you guys are getting you guys are kicking it up on Instagram too, activity wise. Yeah, we're on Instagram. Um, but yeah, you know we're just having fun. It's all about having fun with our friends online. And uh, spine <laughs> spine crackers were kind enough to have fun with us. So now we've formed a podcast alliance, and now we are we just need to find a podcast beef. Now is uh, that's what we've we're been now trying. searching for. We've been trying to stir up some shit with people. I yeah. want RC Walden to fight us now. <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> uh, he's, he, I just, I don't want to fight it, that guy because he's so fucking wholesome. Like, he's so earnest. I fucking hate it, dude. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But I'd, I'd, I would at least rather fight fucking Cliff better than food. Yeah. Because, because Homeboy is like problematic. He's a Jordan Peterson stan and, uh, it's not great. <laughs> I just, <laughs> he's back, dude. He's back from the dead. I know. Yeah. He's back from the fucking literal coma dead plane. Back back eating all this steak. He's just back at it. Yeah. All that meat. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, any Dan, is there any other like thing outside of Evil of Dude or any of the other co-hosts? Like any any other plugs whatsoever we can get out of the way or nope. That's it, man. Just you know, at Viva La Dude. Uh, shouts out i've got I've, uh, butt plug i got a butt plug <laughs> in. nice that's sick, oh if dude. you're in, if you're ever in louisville kentucky go to floor de tea uh pun on floor oh shit that i didn't know that yeah. was called that name is really funny yeah actually. floor de tea it's a tea shop in uh, louisville kentucky it would also uh, work in florida but that's okay yeah <laughs> that's all i got you know shouts right. out well, shit! Cool. Shout out to Vibla, dude. Dude, we we appreciate you coming on, and uh, we, let's do it again. Thanks, everyone, yeah, for, for uh, sure. chewing the fat uh, parasocially. Hell yeah, love you your, guys. Your spines have just been fucking cracked. Cracked. Dude. See you, crackers. <laughs>